Season 4, Episode 1, Trump, January 6th Indictment. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the attempted coup that culminated in an attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021. I'm Scott Kuhn. Now, I usually put out two episodes a month, but I only did one in July. Uh, Our eldest is going off to college in the fall, and my wife and I spent the last week of July on vacation, uh, well, early August as well, in some rather remote areas of North Carolina that have neither adequate cell phone coverage or even Wi-Fi, uh, celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. And, of course, while we were out in the mountains of North Carolina, the long-awaited indictment of Donald Trump for his crimes of January 6th and before and after, of course, was issued. And so, instead of the 22nd episode of Season 3, This is the first episode of Season 4, with the prosecution of Donald Trump for his crimes and attempting to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, we have entered a new phase in the prosecution of these cases. Developments in the cases against Trump are going to be coming daily. As Lennon wrote, there are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks when decades happen. And this is going to be one of those instances where a lot is going to happen relatively quickly, with nearly daily motions and court uh, proceedings in the multiple felony cases against Donald John Trump. Now, the Department of Justice has been on a tear lately, arresting more and more January 6th attackers, violent offenders, paraders, you name it. Um, I'm not going to give my normal recitation of these developments, uh, just going to give that a pass for the moment and focus more narrowly on the January 6th indictment. Um, I'm not also going to read the entire indictment here. That's been done by any number of other podcasts. Uh, I'm actually just going to give my gloss on it, go through my notes on it. And it's not going to be complete um, in, in that sense because uh, you could, you could handle, it, this would be a very, very long podcast. Uh, it just so happens that when the indictment came down, I was already working on an episode about the fake elector plot, and the fake electric plot is uh, actually const- constitutes a very important part of the indictment. So a lot of that went together. So I'll talk about the indictment, and then we'll move to uh, some of the other material, uh, basically some long pull quotes from the transcripts of the fake electors and other participants in this game uh, in the second half of the episode. So let's begin with the identities of the co-conspirators identified in the indictment. They are unnamed, of course, but they are described. And most of them, I had thought at the time, were rather obvious. So I had actually tweeted this out on August 2nd, my take on the identity of the uh, co-conspirators. Person 1, Rudy Giuliani. Co-conspirator 2, John Eastman. Co-conspirator 3, Sidney Powell. Co-conspirator 4, Jeff Clark. Co-conspirator 5, Kenneth Cheesebro. And co-conspirator 6, Mike Roman. Now, these seemed fairly obvious to me at the time, and I didn't waste a lot of time clarifying the explanation uh, because it seemed obvious uh, in part, but also because, again, I was was traveling and that wasn't really how I wanted to spend my time. But I'm home now, and so in the intervening days, it has become clear that some clarification is needed. Now, there was a story put out that co-defendant six is Boris Epstein. Was Boris Epstein involved in the fake electorate plot? Yeah, sure. 
Is he co-conspirator six? I don't think so. Virtually everyone agrees on the identity of the first five co-conspirators. I mean, there are things, you know, there are dead giveaways, like um, this co-conspirator, who is an attorney, uh, had theories that were described by the defendant as crazy. That's obviously Sidney Powell, etc. and so forth. This co-conspirator is an attorney who drafted fake documents and sent them out all across the, each of the seven contested states. Uh, that is obviously Kenneth Cheesebro, uh, or Chesbro. I'm just going to go ahead and, and uh, say Cheesebro, um, because, you know, again, He's, he's from Wisconsin, and in fact, I think he actually, his nickname was something like The Cheese uh, in college. So, let's just go with Cheese, bro. Anyway, um, as someone who has a, a, a funny last name, or like, you know, whatever. Now, I want to be very clear. Um, people who think that Co-Conspirator 6 is Boris Epstein, uh, they're not really doing their homework. Every other Co-Conspirator is an attorney, every single one, and they are identified as such. And Co-Conspirator 6 is not described as an attorney. They are described thusly. Quote, Co-Conspirator 6, a political consultant who helped implement a plan to submit fraudulent slates of presidential electors to obstruct the certification proceeding. End quote. Key words here, right? Uh, the moment I read that, I knew it was Mike Roman. If you've reviewed the transcripts and the documentary evidence, you know that Mike Roman is absolutely central to the fake elector plot. Anyone claiming otherwise hasn't really looked at the evidence. And there's this little semantic argument saying, well, there's another political consultant who sent an email and it could have been, couldn't be Mike Roman because blah, blah, blah. No, they have other political consultants, okay? Everybody in Washington is a political consultant. Just because you have multiple political consultants working on this doesn't mean that, you know, yeah. So um, it's basically a, a silly and semantic argument, but nonetheless, People wanted it to be Epstein because I guess most of them hadn't heard of Mike Roman, which should be a tell. Uh, because if you paid attention to the fake Electra plot, you've heard of Mike Roman. So let's confirm that by going to the documents. And to do this, you have to link what's in the indictment with what is in the transcripts. The transcripts are from identifiable people. So here's the language in the indictment. And uh, this is a description of things that happened overt acts that happened in the course of the plot. Quote, To manage the plan in Pennsylvania, on December 12th, Co-Conspirator 1, Co-Conspirator 5, and Co-Conspirator 6 participated in a conference call organized by the defendant's campaign with the defendant's electors in that state. When the defendant's electors expressed concerns about signing certificates representing themselves as legitimate electors, Co-conspirator 1 falsely assured them that their certificates would be used only if the defendant succeeded in the litigation. Subsequently, certificates would be used only if the defendant... Uh, sorry. Subsequently, Co-conspirator 6, Roman, circulated proposed conditional language to that effect for potential inclusion in the fraudulent elector certificates. A campaign official cautioned not to offer the conditional language to other states because, quote... The other states are signing what he prepared. If it gets out, we change the language for PA, it would snowball. In some cases, the defendant's electors refuse to participate in the plan. U.S. v. Trump, page 25. Okay, so you got that, right? 
co-conspirator one, Giuliani, co-conspirator five, Cheesebro, co-conspirator six, Mike Roman. December 12th. So if we can identify a conference call that occurred between um, these persons, Giuliani and Cheesebro, definitely, that third person is going to be co-conspirator six. So again, this is why reading the transcripts is very helpful. We know there's a conference call with, on December 12th with Giuliani, Cheesebro, and co-conspirator six, uh, along with the Pennsylvania fake electors. So is this conference call described in the transcripts? Yes. And who's the third participant on the conference call? Guess what? It's Mike Roman. Quote. Question. Sorry. Question. Okay. Let's pull up Exhibit 13. While we're pulling it up, I'll represent to you that this is a December 12, 2020 email that you wrote, again, to Josh Finley and Mike Roman. By the, This is the interview with Cheesebro. Just, it's his transcript. To Josh Finley and Mike Roman, as well as others, regarding alternate elector coordination. And you wrote, quote, Mike Roman and I were on a conference call with Mayor Giuliani today, and the mayor indicated he'd like to wait until all the electors have voted before putting out any statements or otherwise alter alerting anyone to focus on making sure the vote gets done and to minimize the chance of electors being harassed. What can you tell us about the conference call involving you, Mike Roman, and Mayor Giuliani? Answer. Again, I would invoke the Fifth Amendment privilege and attorney-client privilege and Rule 1.6 confidentiality. That's from Cheesebro's transcript, page 64. So I, I, I view that as pretty conclusive, right? I mean, unless there's multiple, you know, I mean, there's a conference call. Cheesebro says, you know, the... the Sorry, the uh, member of the committee staff says it was you, Giuliani, and Mike Roman on the call. Um, yes, Cheesebro doesn't own up to it, right? Because, you know, according to him, everything is privileged. But nonetheless, that is in the record. The conference call involved Roman, Cheesebro, and Giuliani. That's it. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how... You know, people, they just want it to be Boris Epstein for some reason. Was he involved? Yes. But, you know, again, in the, the language, in the description of Co-Conspirator 6, um, you know, it says, helped to implement a plan to sub That is Mike Roman. Mike Roman is the implementer. He is the guy who whipped the votes. He had the spreadsheets. He had the contact information. He was making phone calls, um, as we'll see, uh, to the, you know, he was the one who basically put this plan into operation. Cheesebro did the legal side. Mike Roman did what we would call whipping the votes. Uh, he was basically acting in order to make sure they had enough elect electors lined up in every state. So every time one of them would be like, you know what, I don't think this is a good idea. He would be the one to work with the people who were in the states coordinating to find substitute electors. That's Mike Roman, not Boris Epstein. So, Cheesebo's transcript, he, uh, as an attorney, of course, doing legal work for the campaign, unpaid, by the way, uh, kept invoking attorney-client privilege and also taking the Fifth Amendment, right? So, lawyers in the transcripts, in the, the their depositions before the committee, most of them were reluctant to take the Fifth Amendment, says a lot that Cheesebro was taking the Fifth Amendment. Mike Roman, not an attorney, 
also takes the Fifth Amendment, he can't avail himself of attorney-client privilege. Um, he also says a lot less in his transcript than Cheesebro did. Uh, he takes the, the, the sort of the Michael Flynn approach of just, you know, stonewalling Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, everything. You know, do I support democracy? Fifth Amendment, that, well, that was that was Flynn. But still, even the, the, the most sort of non-controversial questions. Fifth Amendment on everything. Um, but again, you can learn a lot from these kinds of transcripts just by looking at the questions. And uh, I don't know why. Some of, the, some of the transcripts where they have someone show up and take the fifth, they don't actually bother to answer questions. On the more important people, they do. They ask the questions and they force the defendant, or the defendant, excuse me, the witness, to invoke the Fifth Amendment to every question. And Mike Roman, being an important person, again, people think he's some sort of non-entity, he is, in, in fact, a key player in all this, um, takes the Fifth Amendment on all these questions. So, uh, I'll turn to a section of Mike Roman's transcript where they ask uh, about his own whereabouts on January 6th or what he knew about uh, preparations for the rally at the Ellipse and uh, the attack on the Capitol. Question. If we bring up exhibit number 25, please. This is a 21-page exhibit. So this is a one-page exhibit. It's a tweet. It's fairly big, but it is from your account at Mike Roman, an account that still exists, by the way, on Twitter, with a picture of people in front of the Washington Monument. And this was posted on January 6th, according to the timestamp, at 11.06 a.m. First of all, can you see the exhibit we put up as Exhibit 25? Answer, yes. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't take the Fifth Amendment. Question. And in this tweet, there are the hashtags Fight for America, Fight for Trump, and January 6th. Do you recognize this tweet from your public Twitter account? Answer, the Fifth. Question, were you in Washington on January 6, 2021? Answer, the 5th. Question, did you take the picture of the crowd with the Washington Monument in the background on January 6, 2021? Answer, the 5th. Question, did you attend the President's rally on the Ellipse in the morning of January 6 and into the first part of the afternoon? Answer, the 5th. Question, did you go to the Capitol at any point on January 6, 2021? Answer, the fifth. Question, have you talked to anybody who went to the Capitol on January 6, 2021? Answer, the fifth. Question, and whether before, on, or after January 6, so at any point, did you discuss the rally on the ellipse with anyone who worked in the White House at that time, including President Trump? Answer, the fifth. As from Mike Roman's committee transcript, pages 65 to 66. All right, so there's a direct link. You have the guy who's the critical whip, the organizer, the person who's in contact with the leading electors, organizing fake slates of electors in seven states. And he's also, it just so happens, at the, you know, perhaps the rally at the Ellipse, but certainly at the Washington Monument, because we know he took a picture of it and uh, the, the crowd assembled there at 11.06 a.m. on January 6th. What he did later on, I don't know. I don't know if anybody has, has put Mike Roman through uh, facial recognition and tried to figure out whether or not, you know, what he did for the rest of the day. But nonetheless, that says a lot. It shows the linkage between the attack on the Capitol and the fake elector scheme, which I think, uh, you know, evolved kind of organically. It's like, well, we need more time. We have this plan for violence. Let's use this to, to implement that. So, yeah. 
it is also interesting, by the way, Roman believes that his mere physical presence at the Washington Monument on January 6th is incriminating for some reason, right? He takes the fifth. Why would he do that if he wasn't guilty? Um, it's an interesting breadcrumb in his transcript. So again, it's, it's this direct linkage between the violence at the Capitol and the fake elector scheme. Mike Roman could have been anywhere on January 6th, but he just chose to be in D.C., not in the VIP section of the Ellipse, but rather with the mob who stormed the Capitol. Did he think that mob violence might buy the campaign another 10 days to put the fake elector scheme into operation? What do you think was going to happen? We know that Mike Roman has testified before Jack Smith's grand jury in D.C., one of his grand juries. Um, I doubt they got much more out of him than the committee did. I'm sure he probably took the fifth to every question. That's why he's included here as a co-conspirator. Now, again, I was already working on an episode on the fake elector plot when the indictment came down, so I already had like a lot of notes on that. Um, could be another long episode. I will try to get through the material as quickly as I can. What I'm going to do is to review the indictment, not reading it at length again. I'm just going to go over uh, some of my notes and uh, some of the areas that I think have been underreported. Um, some conclusions and speculations as well, but other things I think that are uh, better documented, I think have been overlooked for the value added here, as opposed to simply reciting something that is available elsewhere. And then uh, we'll shift focus again and turn to the fake elector scheme. All right, so before I get to the text of the indictment itself, let's address some of the big picture issues with regard to the indictment. Now, any number of people, to include smart and well-intentioned people such as Adam Schiff and not-so-smart and well-intentioned people such as Donald Trump's defense team have called for his January 6th trial to be televised. Yes, it is the trial of the century. Yes, it may be the most important tr tr criminal trial in the history of American politics, certainly. Nonetheless, it should not be televised. That's a terrible mistake. Trump is not a smart man. But what he does have is uh, an incredible instinct for demagoguery and a long history of playing to the cameras. This is a reality TV star. The fact that Trump's own defense team wants his trial to be televised ought to give us all pause. At the moment, Trump can summon his army of winged monkeys to strike anywhere he likes. And the history of televised trials doesn't offer much to suggest that it benefits justice at all. I mean, the networks would like to see this. This would be a guarantee of great ratings. Um, but in my opinion, it's a, a threat to justice. Now, my preferred alternative would be call-in lines, like we had during COVID, which I think it was ill-considered for them to cancel that. So anyone can call in, um, or perhaps they could use uh, audio recordings. Now, again, I really thought that the call-in lines at D.C. District Court during COVID were a real boon for public information. I'd often uh, listen, call in, uh, live, sometimes live tweeting those, uh, which you can find in my, my Twitter feed, uh, Oath Keepers and a series of, of other uh, judicial proceedings. As Marshall McLuhan wrote, uh, the medium is the message. And there's something substantively different about audio as opposed to video. Now, I'm not really an institutionalist, but television cameras have never been permitted in federal courts. And this seems like a particularly bad time to conduct some kind of massive social experiment. That's what this will be, a massive social experiment. 
You remember the OJ trial. This will be a hundred times more riveting to the public. And the mobs of angry, pale men in their basements with guns would be, you know, incited, quite possibly. So, you know, you don't know what Trump is ever going to do. This is just the wrong defendant to make a test case out of this. Now, it's better to use probably, you know, they could do it with some unknown case rather than the most important criminal trial in the history of American politics. Some regional controversy, not one that risks civil war or lone wolf terror, uh, stochastic terrorism attacks. All right, so should be televised. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are people of goodwill can agree, uh, disagree on this, but no, I, I really think that that is a bad idea. Trump has specifically made calls on television, stand back and stand by. You know, Trump has gone and, uh, you know, done these tweets, will be wild. He's played to the crowd on January 6th. This is what he does. And you're not going to win. You're not going to win by, uh, you know, uh, having this in the court of public opinion in this way. Um, Trump would, again, use this uh, and twist it and uh, find a way to subvert the process and possibly cause political violence, and I think we've had enough of that. All right, so let's begin the uh, examination of the Trump indictment with an eye toward what's not in it. Uh, for one thing, there's the big ripoff, the scheme to turn lies about the election into donations for an election defense fund that was never created, uh, which instead, of course, was used to fund the Save America PAC, a leadership PAC that was founded by... Uh, Trump by uh, Jared Kushner at Trump's direction and the law firm Jones Day, uh, which Trump subsequently used as a slush fund to, among other things, investigate January 6th at Alex Cannon's insistence and also to fund the legal defense of Trump and his co-conspirators, as well as the uh, money paid to attorneys representing witnesses before the January 6th committee. Now, I, for one, would really like to read Alex Cannon's report on his campaign's investigation into January 6th, but that doesn't seem to be a thing that is in the offing. Um, perhaps this is privileged work product, I don't know. If anyone has a copy, please leak it to the press. That would uh, be fascinating. What were they saying internally uh, in their investigation into this? Um, people don't talk about this very much, but again, doesn't figure in the indictment at all. Uh, but it just, I despair that I'm never going to be able to read it. Um, and of course, it's not been made public so far. I, maybe eventually it will. I don't know. In any event, as I've mentioned any number of times in the episodes of the 2023 podcast, um, you know, last six, seven months, many of the key players in the story of the big ripoff were represented by Eric Hirschman's firm, Kazowitz, Benson, and Torres. And Daniel Benson was the lead attorney there and actively prodded these witnesses to be responsive to the committee. So that's why I've been looking for movement on the big ripoff case. The witnesses represented by Benson were Rachel Craddock, Ivanka's chief of staff, Alex Cannon himself, Austin G. Ferrer Piran Balzuado, uh, White House associate director, Eric Hirschman, of course, the, the weird kind of, what was his job? Just sort of counsel without portfolio, apparently. Um, minder, maybe. Ivanka Trump, Jared Kushner, Molly Michael, and Taylor Budowich. And 
These are all major, major players in the Trump White House. And the fact that none of them are named as co-conspirators here uh, in the January 6th indictment is, I believe, of course, significant. I thought that, you know, certainly some of them appear to be cooperating. Now, again, Kushner created the Save America Pact with Jones Day at Trump's direction and with Alex Cannon's aid. So, despite my own conviction that the big ripoff is a chargeable offense that's significant, um, it's not included in this, which kind of makes sense. Um, now, it does look like there is a separate grand jury pursuing that. So, and that's kind of, again, uh, flying under the radar uh, line of prosecution that, you know, uh, everyone's expecting three, four, five, and that, this, this could be, uh, you know, yet another felony indictment, possibly of Trump himself, but not here. All right, so another question that the indictment raises is the one of whether the omission of any given witnesses from the list of co-conspirators, does this mean that that witness or co-conspirator has flipped? Now, again, as regular listeners will realize, I've long believed that the circle around Jared and Ivanka and really Eric Hirschman, their, their legal eagle, uh, they've been cooperating. And even though their, their testimony before the committee is sometimes self-serving and incomplete, um, nonetheless, I do believe that they are uh, looking for a way to save their own skins. Now, again, they're not they're not in this. Uh, we're going to find out eventually. Um, but at the moment, you know, the effort to defraud Trump supporters by soliciting donations uh, to an election defense fund was never actually created. Remains uncharged, but there's a grand jury looking into it, and I do expect it is a thing that's going to happen. Also, where is Mark Meadows in the indictment? Well, he was a key conduit to Trump uh, with regard to many of the facts alleged in the indictment, but not listed as a co-conspirator. Now, there's some temptation to see everyone who's not listed as an unnamed co-conspirator as someone who's flipped. But out of all of them, I, this this seems warranted in the case of Meadows. Um, I am now team, yeah, Meadows is flipped. On the other hand, we have someone like Peter Navarro, right? Um, who's more important than some of the uh, unindicted co-conspirators. Uh, I don't think he's flipped, right? He's not included, and uh, it's not because he's flipped. Um, he has other ongoing court proceedings. I believe that he's having a hearing uh, as, perhaps at, at this very moment. And, of course, we have the evil triad of Stone, Bannon, and Flynn. We know they haven't flipped. Um, so just because they're not listed as co-conspirators doesn't mean that uh, they flipped, right? So this is, I, I do believe, obviously, that every, all six of them, these are people who have not been helpful, and that's one of the reasons we're seeing charges. Uh, nonetheless, um, doesn't mean that everyone else in the universe of possible uh, co-conspirators uh, is cooperating with the government. Some people certainly are. Um, but, you know, you can just go down the list, you know, like Peter Navarro, that is just not a thing that's going to happen. He's decided that he has tied himself to Trump and he's going to go with Trump. Uh, you know, whatever, whatever happens now, they won't put them in the same prison. Um, but you know, he has linked his fate to that of Trump. All right. So how, how are they going to handle these additional cases? Right. So these co-conspirators. Um, well, it's happened before. I mean, there have been any number of superseding indictments, uh, you know, in, in the Proud Boys, the Oath Keeper cases, famously, the Oath Keepers case, I mean, wound up becoming this weird, like, if you look at the docket on court listener, the way defendants are added, defendants are split off, the way they had to do two tranches, um, really 
really quite complex. I don't think it's going to be that, that, that case here. Nonetheless, I think it looks like they're going to be charged in separate cases. Now, it's been reported that the reason why the January 6th indictment is structured the way it is is so that they can move it quickly as possible. And having followed a lot of these cases, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a huge amount of sense uh, just with, with regard to the court calendar. And if you've got the lawyers for six defendants seeking delays, it's a lot easier to win a delay than it is if you've just got lawyers for one defendant. Also, uh, there are none of the sticky issues regarding classified documents. No one's going to have to wind up getting uh, clearance in order to review that. So, again, more likely to move uh, faster than the Mar-a-Lago documents cases. Um, and, of course, again, you know, they've decided to, well, the government is pursuing a, a relatively speedy trial date. Currently, they have asked for January 2nd, 2024. Uh, so this one looks like it's going to go first. So what is the meta message of the indictment? Um, this is one that fills me with hope because I think the meta message is they are going to charge it all. This is a sweeping indictment uh, that charges a wide variety of criminal activity, all of which was directed at interfering with the peaceful transfer of power uh, in, up to, you know, leading up to January 20th, 2021. There are so many different acts in the scheme to keep Trump in power and up to now, the government has taken a bottom-up approach, right? We have to arrest this parader from o Ohio because, you know, reasons. Uh, eventually, it'll get to the top of the pyramid. Well, Jack Smith's going bottom-down now. So, it has slipped. Uh, it's a top-down approach, uh, motivated in part by the possibility, of course, that Trump might win the presidency and pardon himself. And more importantly, fire Jack Smith and just stop uh, the uh, proceedings against him. Now, does that mean that these these middle people are going to go unindicted, right? So you've got all these sort of, you know, lower-level defendants, people on the ground. Uh, then you've got Trump himself. What do you do with the cheese bros? What do you do with the Doug Monstrianos? Uh, is nothing going to happen, you know? Uh, I don't think so, right? Now, again, with regard to Trump himself, in the indictment, they're charging it all, including a wide variety of constituent parts of the overall conspiracy under one big tent of the effort to thwart the peaceful transfer of power. But there are also other ways to slice this cake, and the special counsel could charge the component parts of the scheme on the basis of functional subdivision. For example, um, there are a lot of participants in the plot to create the fraudulent big lie regarding election fraud that was a core component of Trump's effort to stay in power. Peter Navarro, Garrett Ziegler, Phil Waldron, Ivan Reichlin, Patrick Byrne, Lynn Wood, and many, many others were part of this effort to basically uh, lie to the public and sometimes create lies that would eventually work, uh, be introduced as evidence in court. So of the co-conspirators, we know of only really Powell and Giuliani were uh, massively involved in that part of the scheme, the effort to create the big lie. But I'd have to imagine there's also going to be an effort to prosecute the big lie at some point. Peter Navarro had his whole staff working on the big lie, the Navarro report, on the government payroll. Now, that's a Hatch Act violation and a violation of other sections of the U.S. Code. Possible, anyway. Um, they take their pick. I mean, the Hatch Act only really has administrative penalties. It'll impact your career, uh, but you're not going to do time in federal prison. 
Um, nonetheless, there are other sections of the U.S. Code that appear to offer, uh, you know, some remedy for people who are uh, look at, you know, misusing government resources for these political actions. Uh, for example, there's U.S. Code Section 18 U.S. Code Section 205, activities of officers and employees in claims against and other matters affecting the government. This imposes penalties up to five years. Now, I'm sure there are other statutes that impose criminal penalties for doing actual crime on government time. Um, now, the usual penalties for government employees who are misusing official time, again, they, they are administrative rather than criminal. Um, I don't have any idea, you know, how these people will be charged. But this indictment gives me hope to believe that they will. Um, you don't go after the pawns. Uh, and, you know, the king, but leave the bishops, rooks, and knights all on the board untouched. So, you know, I get this really, you know, with the listing of the co-conspirators, it's more than just these six. There are going to be other people who wind up facing charges as well. Uh, it's been reported that Jim Parlator, the ubiquitous Trump lawyer who represented Bernie Carrick in his testimony before a D.C. grand jury, claimed that Carrick was asked questions regarding the Save America PAC during his testimony. My understanding from the transcripts of all the actual participants in the big ripoff is that Bernie Carrick wasn't really involved at all in setting up the Save America PAC or defrauding donors or really any other part of that scheme. He just doesn't figure in it, but they nonetheless were asking him about it. So it does make sense, of course, just from a legal perspective, why Parlator might mention it in this context. That's one thing that he mentioned that happened uh, before the grand jury. His client actually has no legal exposure to charges stemming from the conspiracy to commit wire fraud in uh, the big lie. Sorry, the big ripoff. So to the extent that Giuliani and Carrick were involved in creating the lies used for fundraising purposes by the T-Magic fundraising operation, maybe, but, you know, uh, it's not something that his client is vulnerable to, so it makes sense that, you know, Parlator, uh, again, just leaking, like I said, the way these Trump attorneys like to do, um, you know, is offering this uh, dangerous breadcrumb before the public. Anyway, the take-home message here, of course, as I mentioned before, is that there's a grand jury running silent, and we know the investigation into the, the big ripoff has been ongoing, and they've had a lot of evidence from the committee already, and possibly cooperating co-conspirators. So just because it's not charged in the indictment doesn't mean it's not going to be charged eventually. So next I'll look at some of the details of the charges that I think are important. Look with a special attention to the things that uh, I believe have been a, a bit underreported. Um, so there's four counts in total. Count one is conspiracy to defraud the United States in uh, 18 U.S. Code Section 371. They use the body of count one to describe the entire scheme, uh, the fake elector scheme and everything else, the pressure campaigns. They're also covered by the other counts of the indictment. So the indictment itself, if you look at the body of it, um, count one runs from page three through page 42. But with regard to the other counts, is that the language contained, quote, the allegations contained, blah, 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 are realleged and fully incorporated here by reference. So the facts of what, what happened 
that appears in count one, and then are just realleged by further reference in the other three counts. So what does the text of 371, what, is, what does that say? Quote, if two or more persons conspire either to commit any offense against the United States or to defraud the United States or any agency thereof in any manner or for any purpose, and one or more of such persons do any act to affect the object of the conspiracy. And there's a penalty of up to five years for violating Section 371. Now, of course, the statute basically lays out the elements of uh, the usual elements of a conspiracy in federal court. Um, they have to prove several things. They have to prove that the conspirators intentionally agreed on some crime and that at least one of them did an overt act in furtherance of the aim of the conspiracy. Uh, there's no need for the conspiracy itself to have been successful or even actually carried out. Just the, the conspiring to do it and one overt act is enough. doesn't matter whether or not it's actually successful. I went through and there's a section where they uh, cite the paragraphs in which the overt acts are listed. I counted 30. So there's at least 30 overt acts included. So they certainly hit that. There's also a section on the agreement. They, they hit that as well. Uh, there's, you know, there's an eye to the indictment doing specific things, and it does everything they need to allege a conspiracy to defraud the United States. Count two, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, 18 U.S.C. section 1512K. Now, I'm not sure I've seen this one before, 1512K. It's part of the section of 1512 um, that hasn't been included in other charges in January 6 cases. Now, basically, instead of relying on general conspiracy law in Section 371, it establishes a conspiracy provision within Section 1512. That's what 1512K does. So, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Um, actually, I think those Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, but like lower-level defendants, they didn't, they didn't get hit with this charge. Why would they do that instead of using the general conspiracy statute? Well, here's the reason why. Uh, quoting from uh, Section 1512K, quote, Whoever conspires to commit any offense under this section shall be, shall be subject to the same penalties as those prescribed for the offense under the commission, the commission of which was the object of the conspiracy. End quote. So, in other words, this refers to the next count. Right, this conspiracy count refers to the next count, which is uh, just obstruction of official proceeding. So you can see why they charge it this way rather than the more general conspiracy statute. Under 371, the penalty is five years. But 1512, the penalty is the same as the offense to which the conspiracy relates, which in this case is 1512C. I know, getting deep in the weeds here. But the penalty for that is 20 years. So this is a, a much, you know, they get four times the bang for the buck by charging this as 1512K rather than uh, just the, the general conspiracy statute. All right, so count three, obstruction of and attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, 1512C2. So this is a charge, again, we've seen many times for members of the January 6th mob, especially those who made it into the Senate chamber, and it imposes a penalty of up to 20 years for, quote, whoever corruptly otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so. So for all these charges, the government alleges that these acts took place on or about November 14th, 2020 through January 7th, 2020. 
2021. So we're up to potentially 45 years in prison now. Count four, conspiracy against rights. 18 U.S.C. Section 241. Now, this is the most interesting and unforeseen uh, count, arguably the most important. It's alleged that Trump, quote, did knowingly combine, conspire, confederate, and agree with co-conspirators, known and unknown to the grand jury, to injure, oppress, threaten, and intimidate one or more persons in the free exercise and enjoyment of a right and privilege secured to them by the Constitution and the laws of the United States. That is, the right to vote and to have one's vote counted. End quote. So the penalty for this is up to 10 years, which brings the total possible penalty up to 55 years. Interestingly, uh, unlike most federal conspiracy statutes, Section 241 does not require an overt act, um, although that doesn't really matter here. It's just an interesting detail. Again, there is 30 overt acts listed more in the indictment. So, um, but just uh, interesting odd little thing about Section 241. Uh, this statute, by the way, uh, the original version of it, a different section number at the time, uh, was originally written in 1870 and w was amended in 1909. Um, but from 1870 until the amendment in 1909, being convicted under Section 241 precluded the convicted person from holding public office which I think is interesting. It's too bad that they didn't leave that in there. Uh, the radical Republicans of 1870 really knew a thing or two about imposing appropriate penalties for this kind of behavior, uh, at this point targeted against the Red Shirts, the Ku Klux Klan, and other uh, far-right or pro-slavery or anti-civil rights uh, paramilitary gangs operating uh, mainly in the South, but not exclusively in the South at that time. Now, looking at the legislative history of, of this, um, in 1909, when they removed the office-holding provision, uh, basically they said that the Justice Department had said that this part of the law was an impediment to successful prosecutions, whatever that me you know means. They thought it, was, it, was, it had caused problems, apparently, in efforts to prosecute um, people under Section 271, which, so that's why they amended it in 1909. All right. So I'm going to do the obvious thing here and compare the charges contained in the indictment to those offered by the January 6th committee in the executive summary. Now, it's curious, but you would think an executive summary is going to be a recitation of the things that are contained in the body of the doc document itself. Um, I did a whole episode on the executive summary when it was released in advance of the January 6th report. Now... Executive summary in this instance isn't. It contains things that are not actually contained in the rest of uh, the, the report itself. And one of the sections it contains is a uh, list of things that could eventually probably, you know, be charged by the Department of Justice. So, you know, the executive summary, they, I know I'm being academic here, but uh, it's not really a summary, right? Um, it does things that the report itself doesn't do in the main body of the report. Bit of a digression here. Um, all right. So what, you know, what were those charges? By the way, I think some of these might be charged, but they're not charged in this indictment. Some of them aren't anyway. So let's see what was and what was not charged. To what extent did the committee report and the executive summary provide a roadmap for Jack Smith in his prosecution of Donald Trump? So what were those charges? 
obstruction of an official proceeding, 18 U.S. Code, Section 1512C. That's on page 103 of the final report. Two, conspiracy to defraud the United States, 18 U.S.C. Section 371. That's on page 105 of the final report. Three, conspiracy to make a false statement, 18 U.S.C. Section 371, 1001, page 107 of the final report. Incite, arrest, assist, aid, or comfort an insurrection, 18 U.S.C. Section 2383, rebellion or insurrection, page 109 of the final report. And final, other conspiracy statutes, uh, 18 U.S.C. 372 and 2384, uh, this latter charge being the seditious conspiracy count, as was charged against the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, as on page 112. Okay, so lining them up. Um, three out of the four charges that were eventually charged came off of the menu offered by the committee. Sort of. Now, the, the committee actually seems to have... Uh, not realize that using Section 1512K would be a better way to charge a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding uh, than the general conspiracy statute. Um, because again, 20 years versus five years, you go with the one that offers the 20-year penalty. So uh, good for Jack Smith for, you know, realizing that uh, and adding, you know, getting more, more bang for his buck. So score one for Jack Smith there. In their write-up in the final report, um, you know, it, it just, it's a few lines down in the same section of the same code. I don't know why the committee didn't have this realization. So it's a bit odd that it's, these are former prosecutors. It, it escaped their notice. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, Smith got a, is looking for a, a net additional 15 years for what's effectually the, the same crime. A bit of a swing and a miss uh, by the committee on the seditious conspiracy charge, the incitement charge, and the insurrection charge. I know I've spoken quite a bit about the difficulties prosecutors face when bringing these kinds of charges. Charge, prosecutors like to charge cases that they can actually win. And the fact that Smith didn't bring the incitement charge is a, a bit of a tell here. There is a First Amendment defense uh, included, you know, to basically... Uh, what Trump was doing at the ellipse and, you know, with the will be wild tweet and other things. Um, so the fact that he's there, he's not charging incitement shows that Smith is actually, uh, you know, alert to the dangers or, or of a possible first amendment defense. And by the way, this is actually a refutation of some of the lawyers and congressional Republicans who say that this behavior is, you know, that the justice department is prosecuting free speech. Well, no, if they really were prosecuting free speech, they would have charged incitement and Jack Smith did not. Right. John Laurel claimed that the, the January 6th prosecution of Trump is an attack on freedom of speech. Um, but it's precisely the lack of an incitement count that shows actually Jack Smith is being sensitive to uh, the free speech defense. It's more accurate to note that incitement was not charged, um, you know, again, is it not, perhaps not as, as you know, a civil libertarian issue, uh, more as a pragmatic issue, that it's hard to prove that this is, you know, that it wasn't mere hyperbole. Um, although I think, you know, there are certainly statements that, that you can say uh, go beyond that. Nonetheless, no incitement, no seditious conspiracy, similar. Also, you know, if D.C. juries were really as bad as John Lauro and all these other January 6th defendant uh, attorneys have alleged, 
what would have stopped Jack Smith from charging these charges, right? These are serious charges. I mean, again, if the juries are so biased, why not bring them? Um, he didn't, right? And I think it's a sign of realism on the part of Smith. Um, also, you know, perhaps caution, uh, perhaps a real concern for civil liberties. But again, it's a reflection that he's not charging willy-nilly just because he wants to maximize the ultimate sentence. He's in it to win it. He's bringing charges that don't have the kinds of issues that could result in an acquittal or hung jury or a reversal on appeal. Uh, presumably, they looked at Trump's specific language and they just decided that this incitement charge wasn't one that they could bring. Now, with regard to the false statements charge that the committee says, you know, we, we could do this, um, can't put that on the back burner. I actually think that we might see more with regard to this potential charge. The committee refers exclusively to the submission of the fake electoral certificates as the basis for a potential false statements charge. The fact that so much of the indictment examines the fake elector scheme leads me to believe that charges may be forthcoming against some of Trump's co-conspirators in the scheme, if not Trump's himself, with regard to the false statements. Um, again, they've alleged a conspiracy to defraud the United States, but they haven't included uh, a separate charge for the false statements. And, you know, perhaps that is something that could come up again in some later cases. So, you know, the fact that Ken Cheesebro drew up fake documents and disseminated these to fake electors in seven states, and then that these were transmitted to the National Archives and other recipients, it seems to be too easy of a case not to bring. But again, this could presumably be a charge against defendants such as Cheesebro and Roman uh, rather than Trump himself. I think that Smith may leave the electors themselves to be charged at the state level, but people such as Cheesebro and Roman are going to face charges, if not for false statements, then, of course, again, for a conspiracy to defraud the United States. Now, given that this is supposed to be a case that is going to move more quickly by focusing like a laser on Donald Trump rather than his co-conspirators, it seems unlikely that they would charge the other participants in the fake elector scheme via superseding indictment and add them to the case. So, um, at some point, again expect these uh, as-yet-unnamed and unindicted co-conspirators to be charged. Now, I'd like to add that this is also, a, the indictment itself against Donald Trump is a unique case in the entire history, the universe of January 6th cases, in that in every other case where conspiracy charges have been brought, they've been brought against two or more defendants. To state the obvious, uh, this doesn't mean that superseding indictments couldn't occur or that subsequent cases could be occur, couldn't occur, but rather that um, Trump is charged on his lonesome with conspiracy. So leads me to believe that, yes, there will be other cases with a conspiracy because you can't have a conspiracy and only charge one person. Why? Well, this could lead to claims of selective prosecution, for example. So they're going to be bringing other conspiracy charges and that list of six uh, co-conspirators would be a good place to start. The Trump indictment covers an overarching scheme to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, and we can see all the co-conspirators charged together or, again, broken up into smaller groups, presumably according to functional subdivision. All right, back to the indictment itself. I've spent a lot of time reading indictments in the last two and a half years, a lot more than I ever thought I would. This is the best one by far. I love it. 
Uh, one of the problems that Smith faced is just the complexity of January 6th. Some people have been critical of this, saying it contains no new facts. Really? Actually, yeah, it kind of does. But more importantly, uh, do not underestimate the way in which they've brought it all together. The way that, you know, all these complex elements of this broad and wide-ranging plot involving so many participants have been uh, synthesized and brought together. That itself is a, a, a noteworthy accomplishment. Uh, if you were to really do it in a comprehensive way, you would wind up with something like the January 6th committee report, 800 pages or more. That This is a, a real achievement of concision. Um, it's distilling and summarizing the plot itself, and that was a challenging task, and I think that to get this down to 45 pages is a real masterstroke, right? It's not the case in full. Smith isn't presenting all the evidence here, but... His team had to bring enough evidence to sustain charging a former president. And, you know, we live in a system that presupposes equality under the law. Nonetheless, that's a high bar here. It's harder to charge Trump than regular folks because um, you know there's going to be a lot of lawyers and it's going to be uh, a, you know, case where they're going to try to obstruct and delay and to bring in all the chaos that they possibly can in an effort to, uh, you know, delay until Trump, you know, wins the presidency, by the way, which is something that also is not happening. Um, so the indictment manages the trade-off, I think, between, you know, how much evidence they're going to show uh, very well. And we can also infer quite a bit about the government's case by examining where they marshal evidence and where they show they decide not to marshal evidence as fully. Also, containing the indictment itself, I, there, there is a sense in which the cons count one, the conspiracy to defraud the United States, has a certain degree of primacy. The overt acts are all described in count one. Now, I've been arguing from relatively early on that the fake elector scheme would be important and would use phrases such as, you know, the presidency is a thing of value and Trump sought to secure it by fraud. I still didn't anticipate how important the conspiracy to defraud the United States would ultimately wind up being in the final indictment. Um, it's the lead charge and arguably is the element that, you know, winds up I'm, all the other behaviors is covered and contained in that alleged conspiracy. So I think no matter what nonsensical claims the defense makes about election fraud and the contingent nature of these electors, electoral slates, there was no legitimate reason to submit those fraudulent documents without the required gubernatorial certifications to the National Archives and the other recipients and uh, in the face of all the legal challenges. So I think it's a very strong charge, which is why it is count one of the indictment. And the basic fact that, you know, they did this is it's just a powerful fact. You can't change it, you know. You, they did not do what they said they were going to do. They made fraudulent representations to the fake electors themselves in the process. And this really falsifies many of the potential defense arguments against the conspiracy to defraud the United States charge. By way of summary, uh, let's go over all the section headings in the indictment and the, the corresponding page numbers. Uh, page one, introduction. Second subheading. Count one, conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's on page three. Subheading three, the conspiracy on page three. Subheading four, the purpose of the conspiracy. That's also on page three. Subheading five, the defendant's co-conspirators. Also on page three. 
Subheading 6, the federal government function. That's on page 4, and again, that is the thing that they were uh, trying to obstruct. C count, sorry, subheading 7, manner and means. That's contained on page 5, or begins on page 5. Subheading 8, the defendant's knowledge of the falsity of his election fraud claims. That's on page 6, and it lists 8 specific items showing that Trump knew that the claims of election fraud were false, and also 7 specific false statements that he made. Um, and again, they're not charging false statements, but false statements were in fact an element of the crime. And they're using this to establish mens rea, right? To say, well, there's no legitimate reason to do this uh, because you know that uh, the claims you were making were not true. Um, and again, you know, the remedy is legal cases, right? And they note that, right? You know, the remedy was legal cases. You lost the legal cases doesn't mean you get to resort to violence, doesn't mean you get to resort to fraud. Ninth subheading, the criminal agreement and acts to affect the object of the conspiracy. That's on page nine. Uh, that is basically the fake elector plot broken down by state. And this agreement, of course, is a key component of the uh, conspiracy charge, as well as these, again, the overt acts. And these occurred, uh, many of them, with regard to the several states. The defendants, uh, subheading 10, the defendants' use of dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to organize fraudulent slates of electors and cause them to transmit false certificates to Congress. That's on page 21. Now, the key component of this part is that if there was a contingency, uh, you know, to use these fake documents, uh, there's no rationale to transmit them. Um, and it offers three specific memoranda by Cheesebro. Interestingly, not the one that has just come to light, although most assuredly they have that one as well. Sub, uh, the 11th subheading is the defendant's attempt to leverage the Justice Department to use deceit to get state officials to replace legitimate electors and electoral votes with the defendants. That's on page 27. Um so I, I often tend to gloss over this, but yes, this part is the Raffensperger call and all the rest of it uh, calls to state legislatures, um, Arizona, New Mexico, etc. You know, the effort to pressure states to throw out the, the will of their own voters. That's the state official pressure campaign. Subsec uh, sorry, the 12th subheading is the defendant's attempts to enlist the vice president to fraudulently alter the election results at the January 6th certification proceeding. That's on page 32. And they show four specific instances where Trump attempted to pressure Pence and also Giuliani and Eastman's comments at the Ellipse rally and four more specific false statements by Trump himself to include tweets and comments at the Ellipse. The 13th subheading is the defendant's exploitation of the violence and chaos at the Capitol, 39. So this is where they tie it in with the January 6th attack. So this is as close as Smith comes to including the attack as an element of the crime. So the crime here isn't merely that he incited the mob, but rather that it was part of his scheme to defraud the United States. There are two tweets suggesting that the attacking mob was peaceful and should remain so. Um, you know, Trump is basically gaslighting, right? Stay peaceful. It's like they were already not peaceful. 
And so, you know, it is nice to see Smith pointing that out. It's a point that I think bears repeating. When he's saying remain peaceful, they were already not peaceful. He should have said, stop attacking the police and get out of the Capitol building. So he should have said, and say, he's saying, well, you guys are peaceful and please remain peaceful, which has no bearing on what actually happened. Again, further false statements. Moreover, again, evidence that he's using the chaos to delay the official proceeding of the certification of the electoral votes. Um, this is also the section where there's the total of 30 specific overt acts that advance the goals of the conspiracy. Um, and again, that's just, that's one of those where they just list a series of numbers and, you know, they reference the paragraphs uh, by the paragraph numbers, uh, but that's what that is. The 14th subheading is count two, conspiracy to, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, 1512K, that's on page 43. Uh, the next subheading, 15th one, count three, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Um, and, so oh, sorry, that's not conspiracy, that is simply the obstruction of official proceeding, 1512C, and count four, conspiracy against rights. That is section 241, that's on page 45. Um, you know, it's serendipitous, right? 45th president of the United States, 45-page indictment. Um, you know, I don't know if that's serendipitous or planned, but, you know, if it was planned, kudos to them for, for being so clever. Now, the indictment builds the case in count one, the conspiracy to defraud the United States, and then includes all these facts in other accounts by reference. Now, I realize that this is a crude measure, simply the number of pages uh, in each section of the indictment, but you can also read it as data. What are the most difficult and important parts of the case to, to prove? Just, you just compare the length of these sections uh, in terms of pages to the elements of the underlying crime, the conspiracy to defraud the United States. The longest subsection uh, under the heading is the criminal agreement and acts to affect the object of the conspiracy. Uh, that's 12 pages. So it's the longest. Uh, the Most of the elements of the crime are established in this subsection, and it breaks down the fake elector plot on a state-by-state -state basis with those constituent overt acts. Seven uh, pages is the next longest subsection. That is the defendant's attempt to enlist the vice president to fraudulently alter the election results at the January 6th certification proceeding. Next longest is six pages, the defendant's use of dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to organize fraudulent slates of electors and cause them to transmit false certificates to Congress. And uh, the fourth longest is five pages, the defendant's attempt to leverage the Justice Department to use deceit to get state officials to replace legitimate electors and electoral votes with the defendants, uh, the Jeff Clark component of the overall conspiracy. So, again, the indictment establishes all the elements of conspiracy to defraud the United States and a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. And it describes the agreement between the co-conspirators, the overt acts and furtherance of the object of the conspiracy, the corrupt state of mind of the defendant, and the intentionality of the scheme. The fact that the elements of the scheme, while demonstrating some variability with regard to the actual acts in the seven states, are nonetheless similar is significant, and part of why the government spends so much time on this. It's significant that Cheese Bros sends out the requisite documents without any proof of irregularity, and they, they specifically mention that. 
The objective was baked in without respect to any actual facts or any actual findings. Although Cheesebro keeps citing the 1960 example of Hawaii, that was an election that was decided by a margin of 115 votes. As noted on page 23 of the indictment, the fake elector scheme ultimately included New Mexico. Quote, the conspirators and the defendants' campaign took the Wisconsin memo and expanded it to any state that the defendant claimed was contested, even New Mexico, where the defendant had lost by more than 10% of the popular vote. End quote. And again, just in terms of you know what's happened in previous elections, there's no instance where uh, you've overcome a 10-point gap by a recount. You, a margin like that isn't going to get decided by a recount or a court case. That's just not even a thing. And the Harvard-educated Cheesebro, a student of Lawrence Tribe, was certainly aware of the impossibility of overcoming this margin. Trump lost New Mexico in 2016 by Hillary to, Hil to Hillary Clinton by eight points. And Biden outperformed Clinton in 2020. And there's, you know, Trump's never won New Mexico. And they're trying to say that it's contested. Just absolutely bizarre and shows the fraudulent uh, nature of this entire scam. There's no legitimate reason to include New Mexico, certainly. And I expect that the government is going to have plenty of evidence demonstrating Trump's corrupt intent. Also, it, again, uh, with reference to that memo that's come out, uh, you know, the government has in its possession a memo sent from Cheesebro to Judge James Troopas of Wisconsin. Uh, he's not a sitting judge, but people refer to him as judge because he was apparently a judge at one time. In this memo, Cheesebro spells out the entire scheme. I'm going to suggest that this is not unusual. Again, uh, the special counsel may have more evidence that's currently not on the public record. There are any number of times when I've searched for a document that has a control number cited in the report only to find that it's not archived on the GovInfo Gov site. Um, by the way, there's this little scheme going on right now to say, oh, the committee deleted things. Uh, they're terabytes of data, blah, 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 blah. No, that, but on the other hand, are there things that they've cited that we don't have? Yeah. Why don't we have them? Because they're, they're being saved for court cases. And they were smart to do that. You know, they will be included in discovery eventually. I am sure the Department of Justice Special Counsel has all of that material and there's more evidence, such as this memo, that we had not seen to date. In the memo, Cheesebro sent to Troopus. Cheesebro calls the Wisconsin Election Commission, quote, our key adversary in Wisconsin. Now, the Wisconsin Election Commission was actually set up under uh, the regime of Governor Scott Walker. It's a bipartisan agency charged with enforcing election law in Wisconsin. If this is just part of a normal procedure, why does Cheesebro call the Wisconsin Election Commission a nonpartisan regulatory and enforcement agency the key adversary? It, you know, that's his home state. It's absolutely absurd for him to claim that this is in any way legitimate. Um, you know, I suppose it, it, the WEC would be an adversary if you intended to cheat, right? Just like police are adversaries of criminals. So 
I take this as a very telling comment on the part of Cheesebro. You know, it's not Mark Elias or the Democratic Party or anything like that. Those aren't the adversaries he's worried about. It's this independent bipartisan agency charged with impartially administering election law. Wisconsin's Cheesebro's home state, and, you know, he's had a long association with Judge Troopas, which is why he's conspiring with him. Very good article, by the way, uh, from Jeffrey Tubin, who was, like Cheesebro, a student of Lawrence Tribe at Harvard, uh, which explores Cheesebro's background and describes, though does not explain, uh, Cheesebro's relatively recent transformation from a Democrat into a Trumpist Republican. I'm not going to go into too uh, depth on this. I will include it in the show notes. Um, but Tubin basically says, well, he made a lot of money in crypto and became a Republican. I'm not sure I, I buy that. Maybe there's something else going on psychologically with him. Um, but, you know, at some point in the last decade, he, he went, uh, you know, full Republican and eventually full Trumpist. Now, I'm fairly confident that there are other emails yet to come. Cheesebro was absolutely prolific during the period in question, and he had no operational security. He seemed to assume that any email he sent to anyone, anywhere, would be subject to attorney-client privilege, and therefore would never see the light of day. And yet we know from the documents on record with the committee that some of the recipients just gave these documents up to the committee. Why? Well, they were presented with a valid congressional subpoena, and that's what you're supposed to do. So despite the fact that, oh, this is privilege, well, no, they, they, they got them, and it's not privilege. Crime fraud applies. Um, and there's going to be a ruling on that, I'm sure, at some point. So Cheesebro was there taking notes during a criminal conspiracy prolifically and assiduously. And these emails were sent out to various participants, some of whom are cooperating. So a lot of people really want to have uh, cases built against people that they've heard of, but that's not how this works, right? Um, you know, Cheesebro was a workhorse. Mike Roman was a workhorse. Um, people like Trump don't actually run anything. They hire subject matter experts to do the work for them because that's how rich people operate, and that's what they did here. All right, so that is roughly what's contained in the indictment itself, and there are going to be a lot more developments uh, moving ahead. Um, next, I'm going to talk about some events that have occurred uh, within the last 24, 48 hours, um, and then I will move on to uh, some material from the fake elector schemes that I think will wind up being relevant to uh, the eventual trial, which, uh, well, we'll get to that in a moment. So Jack Smith had issued a subpoena for Trump's Twitter data, and there was apparently a long secret court battle that resulted in a $350,000 fine for Elon Musk's Twitter, or should I say X, uh, a fine that was imposed because uh, X had missed a court deadline at some point. Pretty big fine for missing a deadline. Uh, awesome. But, of course, we don't really know why Smith needs this data from Twitter. But we have seen that um, the tweets issued by Donald Trump are elements of the crimes. They are some of the overt acts. The will be wild tweet and other tweets, the tweets actually occurring on January 6th, the tweets where he calls out Vice President uh, Pence by name, they are overt acts in furtherance of the object of the conspiracy. And so my hunch is that he just wants it right from the, the horse's mouth. He wants it right from the, the pure, undiluted source, and that would be some server over 
at Twitter. Um, now, is there non-public data that might be contained? Uh, you know, information, for example, on what devices people were working. Uh, so, you know, we could tell, for example, perhaps whether or not Trump was feeding things himself or whether Dan Scavino was doing it, as he oftentimes did. You know, possibly. We don't know. Uh, but I think that the main thing is that uh, Trump's tweets are counted as overt acts and multiple citations in the indictment, and they just simply want to get the data from the source. In other Jack Smith news, the government has requested a trial date of January 2nd, 2024, and has suggested that the trial in the January 6th case will take four to six weeks. By the way, uh, looking at what happened, particularly in the Proud Boys case, that is a very um, optimistic assessment on their part. But again, uh, of course, Trump's going to try to fight that. They're going to try to get as late a date imposed as they possibly can. By the way, if you're arguing that it's inappropriate to be charged during an election season, why would you argue for a trial date that is, you know, in the heart of the election season, right? This, at least, is uh, a trial date that is really before the actual active um, primaries are occurring. And of course, you know, again, Trump announces a candidacy for the presidency uh, earlier than any candidate in American history uh, with the specific aim of being able to claim that all these cases are nothing more than election interference. So, you know, again, I don't think that that, that should really hold uh, any weight here whatsoever. And by the way, if this case really is flimsy, as John Lauro and other Trump attorneys will say on any given Sunday, um, then why wouldn't they welcome the opportunity to clear their client's name in court as early as possible? Because nonsense, right? Their, their argument is nonsense. Fulton County, Georgia news. Fonnie Willis appears to be poised to present her case to the grand jury. Uh, it's been reported that one of the tools that Willis may deploy against Trump is Georgia's tough RICO statute, a law that Willis has publicly endorsed as a tool against defendants in other cases. She said that she's a big fan of Georgia's RICO statute and has successfully prosecuted it. So it's highly appropriate here um, to use RICO charges at the state level because that's what the Trump campaign was at this point. Uh, during the entire period from November to January, uh, it was not a legitimate presidential campaign. It was a trans, you know, a interstate, nationally operating criminal enterprise. And of course, in more news on Willis and Fulton County, because she's prosecuting Trump, Trump has been attacking Willis openly, including saying at a rally uh, the following quote. I probably have another one, indictment. They say there's a young woman, a young racist in Atlanta. They say that. She's a racist. And I say, I guess they say that she was after a certain gang and she ended up having an affair with the head of the gang or a gang member. And this is the person that wants to indict me. She's got a lot of problems. End quote. So he's just, again, Fox at least had to pay a huge judgment for these kinds of things. Trump is saying these, this, you know, just slander, outright slander publicly uh, about a prosecutor who is prosecuting him. Anybody else, that would be consequential. And I do think that, you know, 
this may actually be consequential. Um, why is he doing this, right? Well, Trump doesn't actually do these things simply reflexively. Yes, it is who he is. We saw what he did with Hillary Clinton and, and basically anybody, right? Um, but technically speaking, you know, he's an expert on when to slander people. He does it all the time. And this is really his last chance to slander Willis. Because very soon there's going to be an actual judge on the case who has the actual power to you know, remand him into custody, hold him in contempt, and impose all kinds of, of penalties and gag orders and things like that. So this is what he does. This is who he is. You know, he's tried to bully and attack anyone who holds him accountable and exposes his lies. We've all seen it a million times. And of course, again, this is another black public official that he is baselessly charged with racism because racism against Orange billionaires is apparently the worst and most consequential kind of racism in America today. Rallies, Nazi, uh, Nazi rallies in Charlottesville, you know what? Those are very fine people. Nick Fuentes, he is a fine, upstanding young man. Fonnie Willis and Alvin Bragg, they're racist, right? Um, it is, it's not even a dog whistle, right? This is his naked appeal to the George Wallace crowd who form the, his base of support. I expect, of course, that very soon he will be claiming that Judge Chutkin, his judge in the January 6th case, is also a racist because she's a black woman and she is literally judging him. So one of the judges in one of these cases is eventually going to have to challenge this behavior at some point. Um, we know that Trump uses stochastic terrorism. Uh, he says things and his deranged mob of followers act on the things that he said. That's what he did on January 6th. We've seen it any number of times with the MAGA bomber, Cesar Sayoc, and Taylor Taranto, who went armed into Obama's neighborhood looking to, you know, he's got him surrounded. Some of these people are willing to die for Trump. And that was true last August. In the case of Ricky Schiffer, a National Guard and Navy veteran, whose response to the service of a warrant on Mar-a-Lago was to launch an armed attack on an FBI office in Cincinnati. Earlier this week, uh, the FBI attempted to execute a warrant on one Craig Robertson of Provo, Utah, for terroristic threatening. Robertson had been issuing specific violent threats against Trump's enemies, to include Alvin Bragg, President Biden, New York Attorney General Letitia James, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom, etc., and so forth. Robertson had an arsenal of weapons, and his hobbies included posting photos of himself dressed up to enact his fantasies of violence with weapons, dressing up in fatigues, military uniforms, and posing with AR-15s. Uh, you know, again, this guy is not SEAL Team 6. Uh, he's just another angry, armed man whose entire personality appeared to be, you know, acting tough on the Internet. No more of that for Mr. Robertson. According to the FBI, when they were trying to serve Robertson, he pointed a weapon at them and was non-compliant, so they shot him failing. Now, I, there's not uh, that much publicly available on this. Who knows? I, I think they issue those guys uh, MP5s, uh, machine pistols, so who knows how many times Robertson was shot. Um, but, yeah, so another dead, violent Trumpist, and um, there's more of that to come. Trump is saying things that is getting these people riled up, and that's what they live for. So, um, thank you for your service to the FBI. That very good job in this instance. 
Uh, you know what? Uh, being a, a armed terrorist in America and issuing threats when you have the means to carry them out, that shouldn't be a thing, right? And we've seen any number of people in America who wind up, uh, particularly young black men, right, uh, who wind up dead at the hands of the police. And these guys have arsenals of weapons. And if they, you know, point them at officers, what do they expect is going to happen? So, to my mind, you know, the upshot is that the armed, violent Trumpist threat is ongoing. And at some point, they should make a motion, in one of these cases, to remand Trump into custody. He's going to violate his conditions. He's a walking, talking vehicle for stochastic terrorism. He has an army of extremists all across America who are well-armed and willing to do his bidding. Part of his strategy, I believe, is legal strategy, is to leverage the potential for violence by his supporters to attack the rule of law and the pursuit of justice. I expect that Smith or uh, Willis or someone is eventually going to um, use these instances, the potential for violence on the part of Trump supporters, in some kind of motion at some point. That is, is a thing that's going to have to happen because he's not going to stop. Trump supporters are a threat to public safety and his ability to rile them up. Uh, he should be prohibited from sicking his violent armed mob uh, onto prosecutors or his political opponents and the government in general. So it's a threat to public safety. And hopefully they're going to act on that at some point. So let's move on to the fake elector scheme, and I'm looking at some representative documents from the testimony by the various fake electors and people involved in it before the January 6th committee. Of course, to refresh your memory, it's Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New Mexico, Nevada, and Wisconsin. These are the states that uh, Trump attempted to deprive the citizens of these states of their right to vote through the fake elector scheme substituting fake slates of electors for the actually duly appointed and certified electors uh, that were originally slated for Joe Biden, the real electors. Now, it's important to remember that both Pennsylvania and New Mexico both outlined claims that these electors were only supposed to be used as a contingency if Trump won in court. And in fact, uh, is the inclusion of this clause in the fake elector documents that uh, is one of the reasons why I believe it's Josh Shapiro in uh, Pennsylvania has said he's not going to prosecute people there. I don't know if that is changing now. Uh, perhaps it, it should. Sorry, it's not Shapiro. Uh, in, at any rate, the current uh, Pennsylvania Attorney General. I don't think that escape clause should get you off the hook for fraud because, again, these fake documents were submitted. If you lost the court cases, you still don't get to submit the fake documents. All right, so this may make them less vulnerable to prosecution, but paradoxically, uh, the, this escape clause may make fake electors in other states even more vulnerable. Uh, it raises questions as to why it is that if these electoral slates really were to be used only as a contingency, there was no language stipulating this in the fake certificates of ascertainment. I'll link to the file for the fake elector certificates in the show notes, um, although these are available from several places online. Uh, I'll link to the one obtained by American Oversight because they were the first who obtained them via a Freedom of Information Act request, and they published them on March 2nd, 2021. 
Also, Arizona electors may be extra vulnerable because uh, the slate in that state actually forged the state seal, which seems extra naughty, in my opinion. They affixed a fraudulent version of the state seal to their documents. In the case of Georgia, there is a special page required by state law in which the incumbent governor is supposed to sign off on any substitutions. Georgia had four substitutions in total, but the form submitted was left blank and unsigned by Governor Republican Brian Kemp. The Michigan Statement uh, Certificate also included this statement, as required by state law. A. That we convened and organized in the state capitol in the city of Lansing, Michigan, and that at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the 14th day of December 2020, performed the duties enjoined upon us. B. That being so assembled and duly organized, we proceeded to vote by ballot and balloted first for president and then for vice president by dis distinct ballots. And C. That the following are two distinct lists, one of all the votes for president and the other of all the votes for vice president, so cast as aforesaid. Okay, every single word of this is a lie. In an extraordinary and legally probably ill-advised move, one of the fake electors, Michelle Lundgren, has now claimed that the signatures from the sign-in sheet were scanned and affixed to the fake electoral certificate of ascertainment. She claims to have been duped by an unnamed member of the Michigan State Republican Party and an attorney for the Trump campaign, and claims that the sign-in sheet matched up perfectly with the sheet that was used on the fake certificate of ascertainment. Interesting if true. Um, Lundgren was also one of only four fake Michigan electors who attempted to publicly gain admission to the state capitol building in Lansing on December 14th. This implies she has a level of culpability that's higher than what's suggested by her behavior. If the other 12 fake electors knew that showing up publicly to try to browbeat their way into the Capitol on December 14th was a bad idea, why did she show up and try to do this? Here's the language in the Pennsylvania Certificate of Ascertainment, the so-called fake, uh, fake elector clause, uh, escape clause. Quote, we, the undersigned, on the understanding that if, as a result of a final non-appealable court order or other proceeding prescribed by law, we are ultimately resigned, recognized as being the duly elected and qualified electors for President and Vice President of the United States of America from the state of Pennsylvania, hereby certify the following. Is that part there, right? If we are ultimately recognized due to a non-appealable court order or other proceeding prescribed by law, that is the the uh, the escape clause that they inserted, that they insisted was inserted, because yeah, somebody realized that they were doing a fraud. Now, as I mentioned, the, this would appear to mean less legal jeopardy for the Pennsylvania fake electors, save for one fact. This certificate of ascertainment was submitted to the National Archives and other recipients despite no final adjudication of the results in Trump's favor by January 6th. Also, uh, Pennsylvania had far more substitution than any other state. Seven of Pennsylvania's 20 electors had to be substituted. And this may have been in part due to pushback from key Pennsylvania Republicans who refused to participate, such as Speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, Brian Cutler. As is the case in Georgia, Pennsylvania law requires that the slate of electors be submitted for certification by the governor. 
As with Georgia, there's a document that purports to be a certification from Tom Wolf, but, of course, it's blank. In Pennsylvania, they couldn't even get all the Republicans to go along with the scheme, so, you know, a Democratic governor, that's a pretty tough ask. With everything else that he did, why not forge his signature? You know, why didn't they do that for the, for the gubernatorial certifications? Um, the state seal, right? They were willing to do that in Arizona. Anyway, in both these cases, I'm sure the question is going to come up. If they really thought that these were valid, they would have submitted them to the respective governors. But uh, they didn't, in order to preserve secrecy. So, at this point, from Fonnie Willis, uh, apparently half of the Georgia fake electors have immunity deals, which means that the charges are possible for the other eight. And Dana Nessel has charged the full slate of 16 electors in Michigan. It's a happy coincidence that every state attorney general in the other five states is a Democrat. This is characteristic of these kinds of swing states. Due to gerrymandering, Republicans often hold majorities in the House delegation and in the state legislatures, but Democrats tend to win the statewide elections. Uh, it does say something that every incumbent Democratic attorney general in these states won re-election in 2022, a sure sign that voters care about the rule of law. So I wonder if this is a pattern now. Are we going to see charges in the remaining states this summer? thanks to Nessel charging her whole slate. If Dana Nessel had no word from the DOJ on the question of whether they would prosecute Michigan fake electors, something for which she had specifically asked, it seems unlikely that other attorneys general in the remaining six states have heard back from the DOJ that these fake electors will be federally charged. What we do know, of course, is that their ringleader has been charged, and every part of the fake elector conspiracy lies at the heart of the government's case. It makes sense that other attorneys general might move on these cases now, that Jack Smith will handle the federal-level conspiracy, and that the states will take charge of these state-level offenses, since all of this was done in an effort to deprive the citizens of each of these seven states of their right to vote. Voting laws vary by, from state to state, but every state has also state-level civil rights laws that also cover voting rights. And Georgia is an interesting example here. Could other fake electors face prosecution at the county level, as is happening in Fulton County? So let's go through the material in every other state where the fake electors could be charged, looking at transcripts of the fake electors of these states before the January 6th committee in order to get some sense of the character and the facts and also an eye to things that have been overlooked. Um, I'm actually going to uh, omit Nevada uh, just because there's one Nevada elector and he, like, I think they subpoenaed another one. They didn't show up. So we don't actually have uh, transcripts from the state of Nevada. Now, of course, no Republican in the country is going to go after these officials, right? Uh, so the Republican Party today is fully Trumpist. But again, uh, going through the list of attorneys general, um, that's not a problem. In Arizona, they have Democrat Chris Mays, who won in 2022 with a margin of just 800 and, sorry, 280 votes. Georgia, of course, they do have a Republican attorney general, but very smartly, the prosecution in Georgia is being handled at the county level by Fonnie Willis, so it doesn't matter that they have Republican Christopher Carr, who won re-election in 2020. Michigan, as mentioned, uh, Democrat Dana Nessel, whose term doesn't end until 2027, as she also just won re-election. New Mexico has Democrat Paul Raul Torres, 
who won his first term as Attorney General in 2022 with an 11-point margin. Yeah, he actually outperformed Biden, I believe, slightly. In Nevada, Democrat Aaron Ford won re-election in 2022, uh, ineligible to run in 2026, but of course, you know, again, still out there. Uh, there's a two-term limit. Pennsylvania, currently held by a former Republican, Michelle Henry, but uh, she appears to have become a Democrat at the same time Josh Shapiro appointed her to fill his old job as Attorney General as after he won the governorship. And in Wisconsin, there is Democrat Josh Call, who squeaked by in a close election in 2022 to win his second term as Attorney General. So, in other words, in all the relevant states, um, you know, with the exception of Georgia, which is being handled at the county level, we have Democratic Attorneys General. And I know in Pennsylvania, uh, it is, well, we're not going to prosecute. Uh, there's some doubts about Nevada as well. Um, I do think that Nestle and Jack Smith should cause all of these uh, people to reevaluate because it is, this is, they are subverting the rights of the citizens of each of these states to vote and to have their votes accurately counted. All right, so let's move on to the transcripts of the fake electors. Arizona. Uh, it's an interesting instance, in part because this is the case where we see the plotters use the term fake electors in correspondence. It was retired Judge Jack Willinchick who wrote in a December 8, 2020 email to Boris Epstein, quote, we would just be sending in fake electoral votes to Pence so that someone in Congress can make an objection when they start counting votes and start arguing that the fake votes should be counted. End quote. Now, strangely, this is included in the committee's final report. It is assigned a control number and labeled Jack Willinchick Production in their final report, but the document itself does not appear on the GovInfo site, nor does it appear anywhere on the Internet. Maybe you're better searching than I am. Uh, here's a citation of the committee report. See documents on file with the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. Jack Willinchick Production, CTRL, control number, CTRL 00009-22311, line 9, September 7th. 2022, Jack Wollenchick Production, 09 underscore 07 underscore 22, Privlog updated. So that's the control number and citation. Again, not on the GovInfo site. Why is that? Well, you know, uh, the, you, you've got someone in Arizona using the word fake electors, and I'm pretty sure this is going to be wind up uh, in certainly Jack Smith's case, uh, and perhaps in, uh, you know, an Arizona State case as well, one would hope. Arizona is also the home, of course, of Kelly Ward, who was chair of the Arizona Republican Party from 2019 until her term ended on January 28, 2023. Ward was in direct contact with the organizers of the fake elector plot and invoked the Fifth Amendment hundreds of times, testifying from 2.30 uh, p.m. to 5.03 p.m. on Wednesday, March 26, 2022. Ward was represented by Lauren Mills and Alexander Culloden from Samick, Werther & Mills of Rockville, Maryland. Incidentally, the only other client among the witnesses before the committee to be represented by these attorneys was Bianca Gracia of Latinos for Trump and the infamous parking garage meeting with Tario and Rhodes. In Ward's transcript, the committee staff asked Ward's any number of pointed questions, such as why she was tweeting using Ali Alexander's Stop the Steal hashtag on page 20. 
And they asked her about a tweet she sent on December 19th, 2020, in which she wrote, quote, working every avenue to stop this coup. Um, they asked, you ended this post with hashtag cross the Rubicon and tagged General Flynn uh, at General Flynn 61, end quote. Sorry, at General Flynn, and that's on page 61. And they ask her about a January 4th, 2021 tweet in which she writes, quote, it's really hashtag fight for our country, president at real Donald Trump. We know that when we hashtag fight for Trump, we fight hashtag fight for America, exclamation point, end quote. So, yeah, that's what that's what Kelly Ward was up to um, and made national news. She is not that obscure figure. She took the fifth about it when asked if she knew of any of the figures associated with the fake elector plot. Uh, Mike Roman, Giuliani, Epstein, etc., and so forth. So, if there are charges in Arizona, certainly uh, Kelly Ward uh, will be as legally in, in as much legal jeopardy as anyone. All right, let's move on to Wisconsin. Interesting case, kind of a, a below-the-radar uh, witness here who I believe is especially important. Again, Cheesebro is from Wisconsin. James Troop is from Wisconsin. There's a Wisconsin memo. Wisconsin was basically the birthplace of the fake elector plot. And we'll begin with Andrew Hitt, who's a fake elector, an attorney, and the Wisconsin Republican Party chair. Uh, Hitt, by the way, works at Michael Besson Friedrich, uh, which is Reince Priebus's law firm, uh, a firm that also represented uh, other January 6th witnesses. So, uh, integrally involved in the whole thing. Question. Uh, and this is from his transcript. His transcript. Question. Okay, and where were you on on January 6th? Answer, I was in Florida. There was a Republican National Committee uh, had their winter meeting, so uh, it was not Jacksonville, but Jacksonville, like, whatever that island is off the coast where I think, uh, where our meeting was. Question, and do you have any information relating to the attack on the Capitol that day? Answer, I do not. Question, okay, okay. That's from page 99 of Hitt's transcript. So Hitt uh, had an alibi. Now, he gave every appearance of cooperating with the committee, uh, at least. Um, but, you know, again, he was more responsive than other witnesses, but less responsive than someone who's genuinely cooperating, if that makes sense. As I mentioned, he works at Michael Best and Friedrich. Uh, it's Trump-connected, headed up by Reince Priebus, the same firm where Cassidy Hutchinson's former attorney, Stefan Passantino, had worked until he quit as a result of his efforts to obstruct justice. So he's like a nexus, right? He is, uh, you know, someone who's worked at a Trumpist law firm. He was a fake elector. He was chair of the Wisconsin Republican Party. Um, and, again, you know, the same firm as Stefan Passantino, a firm that uh, gives every appearance of having worked to obstruct justice, uh, or at least to obstruct Congress. Anyway, Hitt is absolutely up to his armpits in this business, but like many lawyers we've seen, uh, he's reluctant to invoke the Fifth. Interestingly, he doesn't try to invoke uh, attorney-client privilege. That's appropriate, because, of course, he wasn't, as an organizer of fake elector plot, acting as an attorney. I wouldn't throw, I trust him as far as I could throw him, but on the other hand, again, he's more forthcoming than many, um, so, you know, maybe it's possible to flip this guy. Um, interesting reading. Uh, unlike many of the others who are similarly sort situated as key organizers, he was willing to talk and largely seemed factual. 
Here's what Hit had to say about his interaction with Mike Roman. Answer. I mean, I have that one. There's a phone call from Mike Roman on December 12th in the morning. I believe it's Mike Roman. It's a 202 number. I don't have Mr. Roman in my phone. I had to actually Google it as I was trying to figure out who, you know, going back through my phone records. So I believe it was him, and I do recall, you know, getting a phone call from him. And I think it was this December 12th one. And I initiated the call. So I think somebody either called me or texted me or he texted me and said, you can call me. And so I called him, and he he asked, are your elector, are you guys, are your electors meeting on Monday? This was Saturday morning, and I remember how I was struck by how odd the phone call was, because how could he not know that we were meeting? You know, to me, it was December 4th is when I got that guidance from legal counsel saying we needed to meet. So it just, it seemed very, like, disconnected, and, you know, sort of unorganized. Uh, page 45 of Hit's transcript. Now, of course, it's hard to fault Roman on this one. Uh, he was doing the bidding of his crime boss. Um, he probably called all the key figures in the Elector conspiracy on December 12th to make sure everything was a go. Again, that's the same date as his conference call with the uh, Pennsylvania electors. It's really one of the best practices in a criminal conspiracy. You have to follow up with everyone to make sure that they're solid. But I'm not surprised here to see here that you know hit say he thinks the effort was disorganized. Uh, that fits with everything else that we've seen in the hurried and slapdash world of the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad they didn't have time to organize the thing more thoroughly. Of course, it, it may also be self-serving on his part to say, no, no, this was a disorganized thing, when in point of fact, all the evidence points to uh, Roman and Cheesebro being very much quite on top of the entire situation. Another fake elector from Wisconsin was Kelly Rue, a Wisconsin GOP district chair. Quoting from her transcript, question, quoting a message from Rue, quote, I'm being sent to do the electoral vote. What a waste of a day off. I am so pissed. End quote. Um, question continues. Can you explain your message to Ms. Crumberger? Answer. Yes, I was, you know, for a long time, obviously, had planned to potentially be in Madison on the 14th. And then, after Biden had won the state, I was not planning to do that. It was a very stressful season at work, which I believed she was well aware of. And so with, you know, many court cases and things being contested after the election, after Election Day, it was looking like, yes, we would be signing these papers as a backup, you know, on the remote chance that Donald Trump would be declared the winner in uh, Wisconsin. And that was, you know, really... I was not expecting to prevail in the courts and was obviously pissed that I would be using a personal day off to go and complete that process. Uh, pages 23 and 24. Now, Rue claims that she was not in communication with either Cheesebro or Judge Troopis, uh, another key Wisconsin organizer who I've mentioned before, uh, who was, again, yet another volunteer uh, attorney for the Trump campaign. Rue claims that she heard about this meeting uh, from Mark Jefferson, and they don't even ask Rue about 
Mike Roman. So there's different levels of electors within the fake elector plot. Um, I think they don't ask her about Mike Roman because they don't have any evidence that she was connected with Roman. Instead, uh, she was working through Mark Jefferson, a key organizer in Wisconsin. All right, moving on to Georgia. Uh, Let's start with David Schaefer, chairman of the Georgia Republican Party. Schaefer was the opposite of cooperative. Among the fake electors in Georgia, he's probably the top target, and he hides behind privilege as much as possible during his deposition and was in close contact with Giuliani, Cheesebro, and others. It really shows up in his line of questioning. Uh, the committee staff really press him rather hard. Uh, this is from... Oh, there's a rather long citation here, uh, pages 199 to 122. Question. Okay, so moving from the rallies related to the Georgia runoff and then thinking about what occurred here in Washington, D.C. on January 6th itself, this is not a question specific to you, but rather one that we want to ask everyone that, you know, we speak to for the Select Committee. Do you have any information relevant to the attack on the Capitol on the 6th that uh, we should know about? Answer. I think the answer to that question is no. I mean, what are you actually asking me? Question. Just do you know? Answer. I was not in Washington, D.C. Question. Yes. On January 6th. Answer. Question. Right. Did you have any interactions with anyone who organized or convened rallies or were otherwise involved in the events that took place in Washington on January 6th? Answer. Did I have any contact with anyone who did what? Organized? Question. Uh-huh. Answer. So, so on, you know, on the election, so Tuesday, I'm not the best with dates. January the 5th was the election day, and so at that point, I was laser-focused on the runoff election. Uh, this is referring to, of course, the two Senate uh, elections, the Georgia Senate elections, um, that ultimately uh, Democrats wound up prevailing in um, with uh, Ossoff and uh, Reverend Warnock. Anyway, and then early Wednesday of January 6th, I drove from Atlanta to Amelia Island, where the Republican National Committee was beginning a meeting. And so I learned about the events that were taking place on January 6th from listening to the car radio. Question. Okay. Answer. But I am aware that there were people from Georgia who were there. I don't know that they were organizers, but I mean, I was aware that there was a rally there, and I'm obviously aware of the trespassing and the vandalism. Question. Okay. Are you familiar with the Kramers, uh, Amy or Kylie Kramer? Answer. I know who they both are. I'm not sure if I've met either one of them. Question. Okay. So did you have any discussion with them about any rallies planned in Washington, D.C. around the joint session of Congress? Answer. I don't think so. I may have exchanged... I may have... You know, I'll see if I had a conversation with them about... I mean, Mr. Driscoll, Schaefer's attorney. Well, you don't have the witness. I don't have any documents. I have tweeted and retweeted... I've retweeted things that Amy Kramer has tweeted, and I've asked her to retweet things that I have tweeted, and, but I don't think I've ever met her, but I've had some conversations and communications with her. I don't think about the rally. I do have a, recall having a conversation with Jenny Beth Martin, asking her if she was going, because someone asked me about the rally, and I didn't know anything about it. And I reached out to Jenny Beth and asked if her if she was going, 
and I think she said yes. And I think I connected that person with her, but I don't remember who it was. Question. Okay, and just generally, what is Ms. Martin's role, or in what context did you understand her to be connected with the rallies? She is, I don't know her exact title, but she is a leader of one of the Tea Party organizations. Question. Okay. Answer. And she was very actively involved, you know, the recount and the election contest, helping us recruit volunteers to be poll watchers. And so I knew that she was, you know, when I was trying to think of who to connect somebody with, I thought she might be somebody that could go, and it turned out that she was, and I think I referred that one person to her. Question. Okay. What about any members of Trump's family? Did you have any contact with them about around the events of January 6th? Answer. No. Okay. Are you familiar with Kimberly Guilfoyle? Yes. Question. Did you have any interactions with her about January 6th? Answer. No. Question. Okay. Answer. Not that I... No. I have... I'm trying to remember. I have tweeted things. I have asked her to retweet things that I have said. I normally texted her those things, and she's retweeted me. So I've had some contact with her, but I don't know why I would have talked to her about the January 6th rally, and I don't remember ever even having to talk to her about the January 6th rally. And I've not had any conversations with the actual, with Don Jr., Eric, or Ivanka. Question. Okay. Answer. But I do have some contact with Kimberly. Question. How do you know Ms. Guilfoyle's cell phone number? Answer. She called, somebody connected us, and I don't remember who. I think it was, I don't remember for sure. So again, that's from Schaefer's transcript from before the committee, uh, pages 199 to 122. So once again, we have one of the state-level organizers, one of the leading state-level organizers of the fake elector plot, make a point of not being in D.C. on January 6th. Of course, in this instance, uh, uh, incidentally, I was in Georgia at the time. Um, well, the league leading up to it, I was home by January 6th. Anyway, uh, the sheer number, the volume of questions that, you know, they ask him about the attack compared to others certainly is interesting because uh, they knew that he was in contact with Kimberly Guilfoyle. And much like Hit, he was in Florida for this uh, Republican RNC meeting. Uh, unlike Hit, he actually recalls the name of the place where the Republicans were convening in Florida, Amelia Island. So how convenient. It's almost like they set up all these people with an alibi, uh, the RNC did, for January 6th. So, pretty interesting. All right, let's move on to the transcript of one John Isaacson. Uh, he's also from Georgia. He is the chief financial officer of Preferred Apartment Communities, uh, also a fake Trump elector. Now, Isaacson was represented by the notorious Stefan Passantino, the same Trump-funded attorney fired by Cassidy Hutchinson. Isaacson was an elector who had initially accepted to serve, but then, when December 14th rolled around, uh, he claimed he had work and couldn't make it. And he stuck to this line in the committee testimony. Isaacson claimed he had no real contact with anyone from the Trump campaign and was replaced by John Downey. Four of the 16 of the electors in Georgia bowed out for one reason or another. Isaacson basically ghosted the people trying to reach out to him uh, after the election, which is probably why the committee reached out to him. He's not one of the leaders, uh, but he's someone who said, yeah, no, um, I have work, thanks. He wasn't returning Robert Sinner's phone calls, 
and they have an email documenting this. Isaacson didn't remember the name of one person who he did talk to who called to remind him of the meeting on December 14th. Just as Passantino advised Hutchinson to do, Isaacson displayed severe memory problems in his testimony before the committee. And it also seemed that Isaacson had no idea that the thing that was happening on December 14th was a meeting of the fake slate of electors, which is implausible. Question. Okay, when you got this phone call on December 12th, did it surprise you to think that you still had a role to play as a Trump-Pence elector? Answer. Again, I mean it came across to me like a political rally that I had just been called because I was an elector. I didn't have any sense that they were asking me to play a role. I got the sense they were asking me to attend a rally. Question. Got it. Okay. And other than having had this phone call, sort of setting that aside, but it sounds like you had work and commitments lined up on the 14th. So is it fair to say that you are not expecting to be casting electoral votes for Trump and Pence on December 14th, 2020? Answer. That's fair. Page 21. Huh. Yet another phone call to an elector on December 12th. Uh, he doesn't recall the name of the person who placed that call. Could have been, It could have been Senators, could have been uh, Schaefer, could have been a, another Georgia person, could have been Mike Roman, who knows? Anyway, truly remarkable, right? I mean, Isaacson was smart enough not to pay, take part in the fake elector scheme, but when Passantino contacts him to tell him what to say, uh, he just goes along with it. He's like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll just say what you want me to say and develop memory problems. There's this business about him uh, thinking that the meeting of the Capitol on December 14th would be some sort of rally, that's rather implausible, right? It's very consistent with the sort of thing that Passantino allegedly asked Hutchinson to do before she fired him. So yet another witness wrapped by Passantino who has memory problems. Next up is uh, someone else from Georgia, more consequential, Sean Still, who acted as a secretary for the Georgia fake slate of electors. Unlike some of these fake electors, Still never takes the Fifth Amendment. But he's also very much an advocate for the big lie, and he will recite evidence regarding election fraud in Georgia, but when pressed about it, he says that this was something he saw in the news, um, such as the business with the so-called suitcases, right? Uh, in other words, Giuliani's lies. And he says he has no first-hand knowledge of any of this, uh, or from any conversations that he's had with anyone actually on the ground, just stuff he saw in the news supporting uh, the allegations of fraud. Of course, when it came to understanding the illegality of the process whereby the fake electors met, met and submitted false documents, still had this to say. Quote, that's just what, I'm a simple pool builder, right? So, like, I didn't understand the exact code of where that was coming from. Uh, still, page 74. That, I'm a simple pool builder. Yeah, I don't understand. Your ways frightening and confuse me. Um, eventually, this, this kind of, uh, you know, non-answer on the part of Still leads to this interaction. Quote, you didn't specifically, or you don't specifically recall talking to lawyers yourself about that concept. Question, uh, answer, correct. I did not seek independent legal advice on this. Question, okay, I think that clarifies the confusion in my mind. Thank you. Answer, sorry. Page 24. Uh, kind of interesting. Simple pool guy, right? Uh, simple pool salesman. He also gives testimony that undermines any possible advice of counsel defense, which I think is nice, right? He's like, no, I, did, I didn't see, I wasn't doing this on advice of counsel. He's like, great, cool. Thanks for doing that, bro. Now, with regard to secrecy, still had this to say. Answer. 
Not knowing, I didn't ask Robert why he wrote that. In other words, the, the command to be secret. But I think the, that the idea was just to make sure that everyone got in the building and got to where you're supposed to be because there were media buzzing around. Why are you here? What are you doing? What are you meeting about? And so I think he just wanted people to say, just come in quietly, go where you're supposed to go. Don't run your mouth on why you're here or anything else. Just go in the building, go find your room, wait there, and then we'll tell you what to do after that. Page 45. Now this is at odds with what some of the other electors have said. They cited security concerns. They may have done this because Cheesebro included a statement in one of his communiques that there was a need to avoid harassment of electors. Uh, he seems to have had a concern about this. It was basically his pretext for the secrecy. Andrew Hitt, for example, had this to say with regard to the secrecy. Quote, okay. Uh, this is a question, sorry. Question, okay. And do you recall any of the other Republican Party electors over ever expressing any concerns about the meeting on the 14th? Answer, they asked, you know, they asked lots of good questions about, okay, so what are we doing? How are we doing this? That kind of typical thing. The, the bigger concerns they asked about, though, were, that was just about security. They were very concerned about their safety and their security. Uh, hit on page 42. So, again, the, the pretext, why, why did it have to be secret? Well, because, you know, um, the people are going to harass. It, it's the same kind of thing that the, the Oath Keepers used the, with regard to their, quote, protective mission on January 6th and other times. It's because, you know, their, their opponents are so violent, right? Uh, here's what Cheesebro had to say about the need for secrecy. Question. Uh, sorry, this is not about the need for secrecy. This is about um, the, uh, the plans with regard to the, the fake electors. Question. What can you tell us about the conference call involving you, Mike Roman, and Mayor Giuliani? Again, I would invoke the Fifth Amendment privilege and attorney-client Rule 1.6 confidentiality. What concerns did you have about the prospects of electors potentially being harassed while signing these certificates? Answer. I mean, it's addressed in the document you have, but I can't answer based on my own recollection of anything related to the confidentiality or the representation of my client. Are you asserting attorney-client privilege on that? Attorney-client privilege and Rule 1-6, but also Fifth Amendment privilege as well. So, again, in that document, Cheesebro says, oh, yeah, security concerns, uh, make sure this is secret. It might leak out, but we, we need to make sure this is secret, just to, to make sure the electors uh, are safe and all that. Um, again, there's no legitimate reason. In point of fact, every time uh, there is an electoral meeting, they... They do it. They announce it. They, people know where it's happening. It's not a secret. It's not supposed to be a secret. As a matter of fact, it's supposed to be a uh, a public meeting, right? And if they had security concerns, they could have gone to the police. They could have said, we're having this meeting. It's important. No, we have security concerns. They don't go to the police. I'm sure the the evidence will show that they didn't they didn't get security. They didn't hire, you know, they didn't talk to the police. The, the goal wasn't security. The goal was secrecy convening in secret in violation of all the rules regarding the certification of the electoral votes. All right, next up, we're moving to Michigan. Uh, and I'll talk about Ian Northon. Northon is a Florida attorney who works for the Amistad Project, a far-right fringe legal outfit that claims to be concerned with election integrity, but actually specializes in voter suppression because, of course, they do. They're Republicans. 
Now, they do a lot of work to spread disinformation about voting, work that continues to this very day, and they were also deeply involved in the fake elector plot. Northon helped to organize the fake elector scheme in Michigan, which is his home state, despite the fact that he's a Florida man now. Question. Were you aware of any plans before the 6th for people to travel to Washington, whether it was a part of the buses that went or otherwise related to the joint session of Congress? Answer, no. Question. Had you heard anything about people protesting or entering the Capitol on January 6th in D.C.? Answer, before it happened? Question, correct. Answer, no, I was watching. I thought it was interesting. I was, I was curious as to what would happen in that I've never been alive for a joint session like this. That wasn't a formality. And I was I was interested to see what Vice President Pence was going to do with these alternate, alternate slates. I was curious. I was watching some of it on C-SPAN. I had it on C-SPAN in the morning, going on in the background as I was working on other things. But that was the only, only I guess, knowledge I had about what was going on at the Capitol before, beforehand. Question. And were you curious from, like, an academic perspective of what's going to happen, how this is going to play out, or was it from a, you know, this situation could get volatile, there could be problems in D.C. perspective? Answer, no, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting to see what was going to happen academically. I didn't know whether or not Vice President Pence was going to walk away from the podium or, you know, count the slates or what he was going to do. I had no idea. I did not expect any violence, and frankly, for the first several hours, there wasn't any. There were people kind of parading around the Capitol Rotunda. A bullshit, by the way, right? I mean, by the time they get in the Capitol Rotunda, they've been fighting with police. So, okay, what, you know, anyway. <sighs> Quote, that's what was being shown on C-SPAN, you know, a bunch of people in, you know, with their flags and their, you know, kind of marching around the Rotunda, but that went on for hours before there was anything, anything that even resembled violence. Yeah, again, nonsense. How do you think they got in? All right. Answer. Uh, based on what you were seeing that day, uh, what I was watching on C-SPAN. Sorry. All right. Question. Right. Okay. Is there anything that, I guess I'll open it up to you. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think would be helpful for the select committee as it moves forward and tries to understand the events of January 6th and what may have led up to January 6th? Mr. Chamberlain, Northland's attorney. Come on, be fair. Uh, the objection is that, that he's asked a, a, an overbroad question and basically uh, had, you know, presented an opportunity for Northland to set himself up here. But, well, you know what? I'm, Northland's an attorney, so, you know, he, <laughs> if he can't speak extemporaneously about his own acts, then, yeah. Question. Yeah, no, I just wanted to give him the opportunity. If he thinks there's something we haven't touched on, I mean, he knows what he experienced more than I do. Mr. Chamberlain. Yeah. Mr. Northen. Well, I mean, I can tell you that I was as disappointed, I think, as anybody to see what happened on January 6th at the Capitol. I don't condone violence. I think I said as much a month earlier at the state Capitol. I had nothing to do with anything that went there or went down there. Absolutely nothing to do with it. And to the extent that I represented clients who took positions that they filed in courts or other things, I think they did it the right way. And they did it fairly and accurately. And I think Michigan is still a mess, and it's going to be cleaning up its electoral mess for years, if not decades, unless it starts following the laws that it writes on its books. 
But my efforts in representing these private clients were to get people to follow the law, not to encourage people to break it. And so, you know, that's, I guess that's what I would say. And the fact that I filed these cases before, during, and after the election have been entirely consistent the entire time. You know, I can also say, and this isn't a social critique, but if people follow the law, then other people are less likely to violate the law. What? Uh, anyway. And that goes for everybody, regardless of what side of the political aisle they are on. So when you abuse a power or authority that or violate statutes with some impunity, it encourages others to do the same. As I'm sitting here in Grand Rapids, we had riots in Grand Rapids last summer. Excuse me, the summer of 2020. Just this past month, businesses and hotels in Grand Rapids were boarding themselves up in anticipation of riots or other unrest. So I'm not some... You know, I'm from a rural area, and I'm from a small town in Michigan, but at the same time, I'm not so unwise as to think that riots can't happen. But I have seen enough riots. The work I was trying to do was trying to prevent future riots, not stoke them or foment insurrection or revolution or anything else. I'm happy to cooperate further if you've got any specific questions, but no, I don't have anything else. Northern, pages 109-111. Okay! Great, yeah, sure, i totally not buying anything he has to say. Uh, he's really defensive on the question of violence, and he throws up the red herring of riots in the summer of 2020, completely unrelated to the Trumpist mob on January 6th. He knew enough to watch C-SPAN on January 6th, but claims not to have known there was a threat of violence. And he blames January 6th on the George Floyd protests. He spends a lot more time denouncing the George Floyd protests than he does disavowing the attack on the Capitol. And he seems to think that the George Floyd, Floyd protests justify the attack on the Capitol. Next up from Michigan is Kathy Burden. Burden is represented by Michael Colombo and David Warrington, two lawyers from the Dillon Law Group who are presumably paid for by the Save America PAC or some other Trump-affiliated organization. Burden had been the RNC National Committee woman from Michigan. She provided almost no documentary production of any kind, except one voicemail and an image of an address label. Much like the other people affiliated with the RNC, Burden was on Amelia Island on January 6th, very conveniently for her. They do ask Burden about her fellow fake elector, Michonne Maddock, and the effort to bring busloads of people for January 6th, and she takes the fifth. When asked if she knows who paid for it, she takes the fifth. It's page 25 of her transcript. So, just another example that shows there's this inextricable relationship between the fake elector plot and the attack on the Capitol. It's the same people organizing both events. Finally, from Michigan, the Myra Rodriguez, who invoked the fifth a few dozen times in a short 28-page interview. She claims not to know Ken Cheesebro, Mike Roman, Mike Brown, Jesse Bennell, or Sean Flynn, a Trump attorney who is also the Trump campaign election day organizer for Michigan, page 11. Now, I think they believe her, which is part of why her interview is actually so short. So she's, again, one of the sort of lower-level electors who uh, were not as integral to the organization aspect of the, the plot. She does provide some insight in how far down Trump's personal involvement in the fake elector scheme went. Question. Somewhat separately, we understand that the president called somebody named William Hartman and Monica Palmer after the Wayne County certification in November. Do you know anything about these calls to Mr. Hartman or Ms. Palmer? Answer. 
I believe that the president called Monica Palmer. I can't speak to whether he called Bill Hartman, and I know both people. Question. How do you know he called Ms. Palmer? Answer. Because she said it. Question. Did she say it to you? Answer. She said to the group. She's in the 14th district. Question. What did she say to the group? Answer. That the president spoke to her. Question. Did she say anything about what happened on that call? Answer. That's all I remember. That she got a call from the president. Question. She didn't explain what the president said? Answer. Well, it was all around the time... This was happening right after there was a canvassing incident. So that's all she said, as I recall. My memory is not perfect. Is it the president called her? Question. Okay. But she didn't elaborate and say, the president told me this, or he asked me this, or requested that we do this. Nothing like that. Answer. The only thing I remember is that the president called her. That's it. That's on page 27. So, interesting. Uh, skipping ahead a little bit to page 28. Question, is there anything that you, going back to the Monica Palmer call, when she told you and the group about that call, what do you remember her specifically saying? Answer, that the president had called her. Question, that's it? Answer, you know, that I remember for sure is that the president called her. Anything more just would be speculation on my part, and I don't want to do that. So I do remember she said that the president called her. Question, did she say if anybody else was involved in that call? I'm reaching back. I think that Ronna may, Ronna may have introduced the president to her on that call. I'm just, I'm just not positive, not 100% positive. Okay, is that based on her memory, memory, your memory of how she, how Ms. Palmer described the call? Answer, uh, just on the memory of that situation, that's how I remember it. Question, all right, Ronna you mentioned. Ronna who? Answer, RNC chair. Question. Ronna McDaniel? Answer. Yes. So I rather like this part, right? Rodriguez is clearly unwilling to reveal what, if anything, Trump had said on this call. But on further reflection, she does take the time to hand them Ronna McDaniel. So, yeah. That's that's why they keep, you know, they, they press harder. You know, you don't accept the first no. You don't accept the first I don't recall. Go back and yeah, actually you got, you got something, something substantive that President Trump was calling these fake electors and also our Ronna McDaniel was involved. Also, it appears I misspoke earlier. I said we didn't have transfers from Nevada. I, that was actually New Mexico. Um, we actually have someone from Nevada. Next up is James DeGraffenreid, fake elector from Nevada. DeGraffenreid was, and still is, the chairman of the Nevada Republican Party and was the lead fake elector in his state. Main organizer, he invoked the Fifth Amendment. He had this lovely little speech practiced and ready to go. Answer. Upon advice of counsel, I am asserting my rights under Article 1, Section 8 of the Nevada Constitution and the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. The United States Supreme Court has long held that constitutional protections against self-incrimination were designed to protect the innocent as well as the guilty. The Supreme Court has also recognized that one of the basic functions of the privilege is to protect innocent men and has firmly rejected the view that any adverse assumptions or implications of guilt should be drawn about anyone who exercises these cherished constitutional rights. Accordingly, upon advice of counsel, I expressly decline to answer your question. Now that's an awful lot of words to say, 
I'm really quite guilty and will incriminate myself if I answer honestly. According to my account, he invoked the Fifth Amendment 192 times, using the phrase, Under advice of counsel, I assert the prior privilege. The committee neglected to ask the Graffin Reed about the actual attack on the Capitol. I think his Fifth Amendment game was so strong that they uh, he threw him off a little bit, and they didn't ask that, that fairly standard question. So here, in order to give you a flavor of DeGraffin Reed's testimony, I will refer, refer instead to the section where they ask about the possibility of including the same kind of language that um, New Mexico and Pennsylvania used to make it clear that this was a contingency and not something that was actually going to be submitted absent a final court decision. Question. Mr. DeGraffin Reed, I understand that alternate electors in some states edited the language in their versions of this document to indicate an understanding that the votes were provisional. And I will read two of those for you. In particular, in New Mexico, electors included the language, quote, we the undersigned on the understanding that it might later be determined that we are the duly elected and qualified electors. And in Pennsylvania, electors included the language, quote, we, the undersigned, on the understanding that if as a result of a final non-appealable court order or other proceeding prescribed by law, we are ultimately recognized as being the duly elected and qualified electors. And were you aware of any alterations to the language in the other states' versions of this document? Answer. On the advice of counsel, I assert the prior privilege. Question. And is there any reason that you felt it wasn't necessary in your case? Answer. On the advice of counsel, I assert the prior privilege. Question. Do you recall or are you aware of any discussions about the significance of characterizing the vote as provisional or not? Answer. On the advice of counsel, I assert the prior privilege. So as a point person in Nevada, Negraffin Reed was in direct contact with Giuliani, Cheesebro, Justin Clark, and Nick Trainer. at least according to the questions that they, they asked him. Um... According to the emails offered up in the committee testimony, he played a central role in organizing the fake electors to meet because he was asked to do so in an email from Justin Clark in which Clark wrote that he was asking the recipients of the email, quote, to run point on the plan to have all Trump-Pence electors in all six contested states meet. That's page 16. When DeGraffin Reed sent the Cheesebro chain to Michael McDonald, not that one, the Nevada Republican, Michael McDonald, he made sure to write, quote, do not share this with anyone at this point, end quote. Yeah, because again, you know, utter secrecy for this thing that's totally legitimate. We even have the email exchange wherein Cheesebro sent the fake documents to Michael McDonald. McDonald, DeGraffenried, and the whole Nevada slate were up to the next in it, and so should be indicted by someone. We also have a very, very long text chain between DeGraffenried and Sean Meehan, another fake Nevada elector. Now, the whole thing is very interesting, uh, but I would direct you to this. On January 7th, DeGraffenried sent this message. Quote, I don't think we yet know all of the ramifications for what Trump and a small number of fucktard supporters of his did to us yesterday. End quote. Yeah. So... Uh, I think we know now, Jim, right? So, you know, again, at the moment, you, this, this very, very Trumpy person, you know, d he's pointing the finger in the right direction. Yes, it was the fucktard supporters, but more importantly, it was Trump himself. Next up from Nevada is Nevada GOP Chair Michael McDonald himself. 
Question. All right. Briefly, I'd like to direct your attention to Exhibit 2 with Bates number ending in 495. This appears to be a November 4th, 2020 text message exchange between you and an individual named Steve. In the text message, you write, quote, was on the phone to the president, Mark Meadows, Giuliani, and they want full attack mode. We're going to have a war room meeting in about an hour in the boss's suite, unquote. What did you mean when you said that President Trump, Mark Meadows, and Mr. Giuliani, quote, want full attack mode? Answer. Based on the advice of my attorney, I'll be invoking my Fifth Amendment privilege. Question. All right. So next I'd like to move to Exhibit 3, and this is with the Bates number ending in 534. While we pull it up, I'll describe to you that this is a November 7th, 2020 text message exchange between you and Mr. Bernard Carrick. And in that text message exchange, you provide a fairly detailed description for the process for certifying the presidential election vote in Nevada, running from the canvassing of the vote on November 13th to the date when the Nevada Secretary of State and the Supreme Court are supposed to canvass the certified county results on November 24th the issuance of certificates of ascertainment by the safe harbor date of December 8th, and then finally, the electoral certification on January 6th. In what capacity were you in contact with Mr. Carrick following the 2020 presidential election? What do you think he says? Answer. Based on advice from my attorney, I will be invoking my Fifth Amendment privilege. Question. Why did you send Mr. Carrick information regarding the various dates related to the certification of the election results in Nevada? Answer. Based on advice from my attorney, I will be invoking my Fifth Amendment privilege. Question. Did Mr. Carrick request this information from you? And if so, why? Answer. Based on advice from my attorney, I'll be invoking my Fifth Amendment privilege. Uh, that is in McDonald's transcript pages 15 to 16. Now, they ask McDonald specifically about whether he communicated with any of the following persons. Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, Matt Morgan, Justin Clark, Nick Trainer, Kenneth Teesborough, James Troopas, John Eastman, Boris Epstein, Bernard Carrick, Mike Roman, or Mike Brown. And McDonald took the fifth on that, uh, page 19. All right, and again, as I mentioned, uh, the only elector I can find in uh, the transcripts is from New Mexico's Jewel Paldrell. But Powell Drell blew off his committee subpoena, so of course we don't actually have uh, a real transcript for him. We don't even have the, the kind of transcript where they, uh, you know, read the questions, because Powell Drell didn't show up, and it says no consequences for it. So that gives you some of the flavor of the transcripts that the committee have from uh, some of the organizers, different levels of fake electors, substituted fake electors, uh, fake electors who were sort of kind of there, but not really involved in the planning. And then the ones who are like linchpin organizers, uh, people such as uh, Mr. McDonald, um, and uh, of course with the attorneys like Ian Northen, um, and uh, yeah, just all the levels you have of, you know, different fake electors. Uh, the Robert Sinners transcript is, is interesting, but this, again, I'm not, you know, if I were to do a summation of, of every transcript, it's quite a lot. The point is, of course, that they have a lot of information, uh, and they have information showing that Trump himself, and this, again, you know, not reported on widely, but Trump himself was in communication with some of these people, and while you had uh, Cheesebro and Mike Roman, uh, you know, handling legal stuff, and doing things like whipping the votes. You also had the whole list, uh, Carrick, 
uh, Giuliani, Epstein, uh, playing other roles as well in the fake elector plot. So it was a wide-ranging plot with a wide set of actors at the state level and within the Trump campaign, the Trump White House. Oh, and by the way, the RNC as well, uh, who again organized a retreat on Amelia Island on January 6th, which again, pretty suspicious, right? Uh, why are you holding this meeting? You know, I mean, the thing appears to be, to me, uh, to be a knowing, conscious alibi to make sure that, you know, they can all say, oh, no, no, I, I wasn't even in D.C. I wasn't even at home. I was participating in this thing at the RNC. Be interested to know what actually happened on Amelia Island on January 6th. They don't ask a lot of questions about that. Um, but, you know, to be a fly on the wall uh, at, at this meeting of state-level RNC officials uh, would have been very interesting. And again, we don't know if uh, Jack Smith ultimately is going to charge you state-level people. You know, like I said, my gut says that he's going to leave that up to the states, and some states, uh, they don't appear to be moving forward at all. Um, there's the issue of contact between states uh, state-level attorneys general, or perhaps county prosecutors, and the DOJ. What we do know is that they're not talking. They're not talking at all. They're so sensitive to issues. that These are these are normal conversations, by the way, for prosecutors to have uh, between the federal and the state level. They're not talking about any of it. So Dana Nessel, for example, had asked the DOJ for guidance, and they said nothing. And so Nessel went ahead and just charged the whole slate with uh, the same charges, even though there are varying level of levels of culpability. Um, in May of this year, Vonnie Willis, of course, announced that six of the 12 fake electors in Georgia would be offered immunity. And I thought this would be some kind of model for the state-level prosecution of defendants. It's pretty clear there's varying levels of culpability in each of the states. Some of them are intimately involved. Um, there's strong evidence to show that they were in direct contact with the Trump campaign and with the attorneys uh, and you know organizers such as Mike Roman who were running it, as well as other officials, um, including you know it went across states, right? I mean they were they were talking with uh, Troopus, you know, in Wisconsin. So there were people who were involved in the state level plot who were also active in the national plot and who were uh, taking part in these conversations between the states. So it's it's kind of interesting, you know, it's like, well, all these people, they can talk, but, you know, the, the DOJ can't talk uh, to state-level officials because they're so sensitive to these concerns. So hopefully some of these state-level charges will move forward because, um, you know, you shouldn't have freedom in a state to just subvert the will of the electorate. And given the fact that there's so much evidence that we haven't seen, um, and, you know, that uh, somebody brought out the Cheesebro memo, um, there's more stuff, and there's so many communications between so many parties, and there's not that much of it. Um, there's a lot. I mean, there's already enough to charge on the, the uh, committee site. Nonetheless, there's going to be a lot more there there in the fake elector plot. And remember, of course, too, that this is all central to the main thing they were trying to do, the object of the conspiracy, which was to delay, obstruct, and prevent the peaceful transfer of power. And so, you know, uh, the fake electors met on the same day as the real electors, December 14th, 2020. Trump's tweet that kicked off the invitation to the mob 
was on December 18th. So there wasn't even a time for an adjudication. These plots are running at parallel. Trump makes the decision to send people to D.C. to attack Congress on, you know, just four days after his fake slates of electors meet in the, the several states, seven states, and there's, you know, there's not been an official adjudication in their favor. Nor could there have been, right? Because this was all happening after the safe, safe harbor date of December 8th which meant there was no real chance that any court decision would overturn the election results in any of the battleground states, which is why the decision to attack the Capitol is in fact actually utterly consistent with the fake elector plot. They knew the fake elector plot at this point wasn't going to work, particularly if they couldn't get Pence on board. You know, the Pence card was for them a, a bit of a wild card. Trump and the other plotters may have believed that the mere existence of these fake slates of electors could have been used as a pretext to delay certification. So the goal of the attack and the fake elector scheme are one and the same, right? Delay and then overturn. So with the passage of the safe harbor date, there's no legitimate reason to convene fake electors on December 14th. Nonetheless, they do it. Certainly, there's no legitimate reason to submit these fake elector slates. Uh, they told many of the fake electors they weren't going to do it. Nonetheless, they do it. Trump and his co-conspirators threw everything at the wall to see what would stick. And I'm going to end this episode um, with Rudy Giuliani's message to Tommy Tuberville. Uh, again, outlining that delay was the main part of the strategy. So this is the message he uh, relayed to Tuberville on January 6th. Quote, Senator Tuberville, or should I say Coach Tuberville, this is Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer. I'm calling in because I want to discuss with you how they're trying to rush this hearing and how we need you, our Republican friends, to try to just slow it down so we can get these legislators to get more information to you. And I know they're reconvening at 8 tonight, but the only strategy we can follow is to object to numerous slates and raise issues so that we get ourselves into tomorrow, ideally until the end of tomorrow. I know McConnell is doing everything he can to rush it, which is kind of a kick in the head, because it's one thing to oppose us, it's another thing to not give us a fair opportunity to contest it. And he wants to try to get down to only three states that we can test, whether there are ten states that we could test, not three. So, if you could object to every state, and along with the congressman, get a hearing for every state, I know we could delay you a lot, but it would give us the opportunity to get what legislators are very, very close to pulling their vote, especially after what McConnell did today. It angered them because they have written letters asking that you guys adjourn and send them back the questionable ones, and they'll fix them up. So this phone number, I'm available all night, and it would be an honor to talk to you. Thank you. So this is after the violence. This is after losing 60 court cases. This is after their basically going to determine to reconvene and certify, you know, Giuliani is still aiming at the same tactic, delay, 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 overturn corruptly, even after no, there's no indication that this strategy is going to work at all. So I do think that, you know, there's lots of evidence regarding the, the fake elector plot and the tie to the overall strategy of delay, then overturn. 
Okay, thank you so much for your time. As always, links to the supporting documents will be in the show notes. I haven't actually included a link to each of the transcripts, mea culpa, um, but you can find those on the GovInfo site managed by the House Select Committee, the former House Select Committee.